Here's a place where all of us can be safe. Our stories of transformation can be safe, and all the things we want to research are safe here. This is Safe Space with Cheyenne. I'm really excited you're here, and I hope you stick around for a while, because I've got a lot to show you before I leave Earth. I love you guys. All right, my Safe Space friends, today I have Sean Young, and he is visiting from Anchorage, Alaska. Sean, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. We just got to talk a little bit before we hit the record button, but um, you have a podcast called Sitting with Sean. So before we get into your backstory and all the wonderful things that you're doing now, um, talk to me about your podcast. Um, so my podcast, like you said, is Sitting with Sean. It's on YouTube, Spotify, and just trickles down to Apple. I haven't figured out how to work that yet. But anyways, um, I started my podcast uh, about six months ago. Uh, with the intentions of sharing my story and getting in depth with my story and, and talking about some of the things that uh, I had gone through. It branched off into something much bigger where I have, I have guests coming on and I upload almost twice a week. And it's uh, people that are either suffering from mental health disorders and recovery from mental health disorders and addiction or um, are family members or doctors. I've had a psychologist online who was, who was in recovery and I was like, oh, man, that's awesome. Um, yeah, that's a I big just, deal. Yeah, I just interviewed a lady today that's that's from um, that's from uh, Amsterdam. So that was cool. That was interesting. Yeah, so I, I just love hearing people's stories and, and what I find the most introspective uh, part of it is that like uh, much like you and before you hit record is that is that we we all have, have something in common and it's finding that common that common ground in what we have um, and and um, so I find a lot of commonality in between uh, the things that my guests share and what I've been through or friends of mine have been through. Yeah, we have a lot in common for sure. Like I told you, I love hearing people's stories as well, but I also learn from them. Like I, I really empathetically like put myself in anybody's shoes when they're telling me a story. And I think I've always been that way. And just within the last couple years um, have really like, honed in on that skill and just been like this isn't just a skill I really think this is a part of my purpose is to definitely like host those stories and listen and you know continuously learn like everyone that comes on the show I always learn from I always have a notebook and I'll write down like things that they say that you know I don't think they realize kind of how profound it is or just very introspective so um the work that you're doing is highly needed, um, specifically just to like fight the stigma, right? Like you're just like, oh, I just had a doctor in recovery coming on and it's like, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine how many like nurse Jackies out there there are? Like how many people work around like pharmaceuticals and all of that and you know, whatever bad habit they actually like might pick up. Like we won't get into the legal part of it of how wrong it is to steal prescriptions from your job, but everybody's out there and it is such a shameful addiction which just like um like addicts are near and dear to my heart I grew up with several of them in my life um and people with suicide ideation is something else that I grew up um specifically for me and people in my life so I um I didn't grow up like in like there weren't drugs in my household but we were there was, it was around somewhere, you know? And my dad was also a police officer, so he would come home and he would be like, 
okay, well, we just, we had to take like two kids away from these people that were making meth in the back of this trailer or, hey, um, we would go to the police station because they would do like dare things. So they would have um, samples of evidence and then they would show kids like, this is methamphetamine, this is cocaine, this is marijuana, this is K2, these are bath salts, you know, and however... However much that actually helped in the long run, I don't really know because I think peer pressure will always override someone telling you not to do a drug. Like clearly we know we're not supposed to do drugs, um, yeah. but there's an underlying reason of why that happens. Um, in my personal experience, I struggled super hard with suicide ideation, not fitting in, not really understanding my underlying issues, especially being like emotionally detached from myself. And um, I mean, just wanting to escape reality, right? Like every time you come down, it's 10 times worse. And I had, oh my gosh, I had a lot of, I call them anti-idols. There's idols and anti-idols in your life. I learned really well from anti-idols. And I had a lot of people that were going through their own demons that would confide in me. And I was able to, again, put myself in their shoes and be like, how would I handle this situation if I were them? And Truth is, I probably would be doing the exact same thing they were doing. Um, even with like programs and stuff, you can go and learn whatever you want in a rehab facility. But if you go back in to that same lifestyle and you don't change, you're, it's a continuous outsource program that we have to break within ourselves. Absolutely. And it's, well, two things on that is addiction is, is the one disease in the world. And I call it a disease because it is. Uh, it's defined in the DSM-5 as a disease, as a uh, mental health disorder. Um, it's the only disease in the world in existence that will tell you that you're not the problem. Everybody else is. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, the thing about recovery, and I'll, I'll hit this a little bit later on, is that, um, is that you know, we, when we do go back out, and I say go back out, meaning we get out, of our program, we stop doing what worked for us and we go back out, um, there's something going on up here. And, and it's not necessarily an, uh, a substance thing, it's, it's what's going on between between the two ears right there. And um, and, and I find that to be very true, because every time I've gone back out, it had nothing to do with the substance. The substance could have been crack, it could have been meth, it could have been alcohol, it could have been uh, a, a variety of things, but it was what was going on in between here that really changed everything. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, addiction, obviously, like we're going to specify, you know, illegal substances on this episode. But when I later went down the rabbit hole on what is an addiction outside of drugs? Like, can you be addicted to McDonald's? Can you be addicted to diet pills? Can you be addicted to TV? Like there were so many things that since addiction is only sold to us is kind of a negative connotation and it's only directed towards the illegal drug trade, we're actually <clears throat> all kind of missing that, like if you look through all the habits in your life, right, whether it's smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, going to get fast food, TV, like a lot of daily habits in our lives we're actually addicted to. So that was really big for me because even today when I audit my life, I'm like, okay, what is a habit in my day right now that I'm actually doing that's 
pretending to be a comfort zone for me and adding relief to my life. But if I peel that habit back, what is actually underneath that? Like, why do I feel like I need to go do this? And for me, I really enjoyed learning um, the chemicals that release in all of our brains and the brainwave states that we actually access because um, I had a small trip with Western medicine when I was 19 years old and I learned the science of what those pills were doing to the neurons in my brain and the neural pathways. And I thought it was weird that, you know, we're not supposed to outsource ourselves to illegal substances, but if I go to this facility, you'll give me a legal substance that literally programs my brain the way that you want me to be or how you um, clinically decide that I will be able to fit into society because of this pill with also adding on behavioral therapy for the next 10 to 12 years of my life and revisiting and the same shit over and over. And that right there is why I do not take meds. Yes. Yes, you're absolutely right. But there are people out there that I know that do, and I definitely don't want to stigmatize them. Like, go get off your pills. Tell your therapist to fuck off. Like, no, I'm not right. saying that. I'm just saying, like, for my personal experience, Western medicine wasn't the way. I felt like I was a part of the system. Um, behavioral therapy, I'm personally not a fan of for myself, but maybe it works for somebody else. Um, I really, really love, like, energetic modalities, like really, really digging into the subconscious of things. And I think a lot of the therapeutic things, especially in Western medicine, they are just surface level. And they'll get you so far, like don't get me wrong, like they'll get you to realize like, oh, hey, yeah, I actually do have a facade and a protective layer and a mask and an ego that I'm wearing. But how do you take that mask off and find your true self, you know? Yeah. And at the end of the day, when you do self-care, um, you don't have like, you're never going to walk into your therapist's office and they're going to be like, hey, you're healed. Good job. Bye. Good luck. Have like, good yeah, have a good day. Like at the end of the day, they need you. They need you to be fucked up. So you come back and then let me take this problem that so many other modalities could help you in a couple hours to, you know, go back into yourself. But instead, let's talk about this problem for the next two years of your life for two to $300 an hour. And then let me recommend more therapy for you. You know what I mean? This like it's, it's a part of the system that I, I, I don't want to outsource myself like that. I don't, I'm not a fan. Can you tell? Yeah. Yeah. No, no and, but, and, and, but, that's why I go to counseling. That's why I love my counselor. My counselor is not a not a type of person that's going to be like, "You're fucked up. Let me keep you in the same state of mind and and until I have no use for you." Like, um, I came in and he's like, "What do you want to work on?" And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> this is different." Yeah. You're, you're giving me the option. Okay, fine. And I told him, and he was, you know, and, and now now I go. You know, at the beginning it was it was all the hard work. You know, it was it was all the all the trauma-induced therapy. I've done trauma-induced therapy. That shit sucked, but it helped me out. Um, and then, you know, now it's it's the maintenance phase. Now it's, now it's you know, I check in with them every week. I don't have to, but I choose to um, because life happens and life still happens. And, and you know, I want the opinion of somebody on the, in the medical professional field. Uh, I, I would go to, uh, I, you know, if I, if I had cancer, I, I would go, and I would go get checked out by, by a doctor that specializes in cancer instead of going to um, 
going to somebody that's like a, a pediatrician, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, but so I go, I go to my counselor, one, because I trust him, but two, because, you know, he, uh, you know, we, he specializes in something that I'm particularly suffering from. So like, if I, if I have a shit week, if I'm like, man, I'm really emotional, I can't figure it out. I go to him and he's like, all right, well, let's sit down, let's figure this out. Let's take a moment out of your day, an hour out of your day, and we'll figure this out. And so he gives me the tools to like sit down and really just be like, all right, woosah, goose blah, blah, and we'll figure this shit out. And so that's, I, I enjoy him, but there has, and I can be honest, there's one other counselor through my whole life that I've ever been to that I've connected really well with. And it just so happened to be the guy right before him. See, I think that's powerful, though. I love to hear stories about whether therapists or counselors that give you the tools to, like, go dig into yourself. There's so many people that I've talked to where they're like, yep, yeah, I have therapy on Thursdays. That's all the self-work I need. That's all the introspection time I have. And I'm like, ooh, this is dangerous. Like, that's like going to church on Sunday and repenting and going, doing the same thing on Monday and going, well, I'll just go back to church on Sunday and tell God I'm sorry. Like, corrective action is needed. And especially, like, so my, my biggest thing is the integration. So, like, you find it, you release it, you have the awareness, you have that neuroplasticity that's been built up for however many years. So especially like a red flag if you're looking for somebody, if you find a practitioner or a therapist or whatever they like to call themselves to work with and they don't give you proper integrating tools, they're leaving you with cognitive dissonance and you're going to shove yourself so, so much further back into an addiction or a comfort zone that you actually think is like good for you. It's kind of like settling in a way, right? So, um, those are things that I often think about. Um, recently, I found a therapist locally in Wichita, and he actually writes the um, curriculum for the P- PTSD programs for the Kansas VA. But he also, like, he uses spirit, he uses science, he uses a multitude of modalities to really, like, gauge you know, what we kind of need to help and work with you. Like, are you here for a drug addiction? Are you here because of the military? Are you here because someone touched you when you were five? Like so many different things. And he's like one of the first therapists in a long time that I've been like, I think I'm ready to tell you what happened to me. And, you know, like really get some good integration tools to truly heal myself and move forward and really be able to talk about it more. Like I do pretty good with talking about a lot of stuff that happened to me. But what I realized through my healing journey is one, I had a lot of suppressed memories that, um, you know, I didn't know that I could get back or kind of retrospect on. And then after accepting that those things were a part of my reality at one time, I, it blew my mind. Like I didn't realize I was holding this stuff in my body, you know, which that was one of the biggest things. I'm like, what do you mean that thing that happened to me when I was eight is still still on my yeah. lower spine? That's insane, yeah. you know? I, I think I think a lot of people uh, don't understand that like that like a good counselor is gonna give you options of, of how you can be treated, you know, and, and and offer different things. And 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 you know, if he doesn't have the answers, she doesn't have the answers, they can get the answers for you or or, or refer you to somebody that can. Yeah, you know? no and, gatekeeping. 
That's a red flag. The one, the one thing that I hate is, is people that, that seem to have all the answers, mm -hmm. but they do nothing for you at all. Like I, I've run into counselors at the VA that were like that. They're like, we're going to do this. Well, sorry, if I don't connect with you within the first hour, like, like our hour, our first hour together, if I don't connect with you, you're not getting a fucking thing out of me. That's very true. But, but if you show an interest in me and you show an interest in my family dynamic, my background, if you show an interest in my hobbies, okay, at least for that hour, mask it. If you mask it and you say, hey, man, like, what is your life? Yeah. Well, you really have to make someone feel comfortable, right? I mean, I can't imagine walking in, walking into an office like that and then being like, all right, so here's what I'm going to do for you. This is why you're sitting in my office today. You know, kind of like an egotistical thing, which, yeah. you know, it happens. It happens whether you're spiritually enlightened or you're just therapeutically educationally college certified. I mean, there's ego and everything. I think the illusion is that all of us can actually get rid of our ego and like truly like not, not be in some dualistic format, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no. I, I've been almost three years sober, worked AA, worked the, worked the steps. I, I do service work. I mean, we're going to talk about that later, but ego gets in the way sometimes. Even, even, even with people that are 30, 40 years sober, ego gets in the way sometimes. And, and so to, to make a statement that, oh, ego is, ego is not a part of my problem, it most definitely is. It's a constant audit for me. So much that I looked up affirmations and mantras. Because, like, okay, so one thing to pull it apart, right? Because I'm still a beginner. I think I'll always feel like a beginner, or at least to, like, want to be there for beginners. So a lot of people think the ego is, like, only negative, only bad, like, just coming in to, like, just fuck shit up. But in reality, especially when you start going through the healing process, whatever modality you choose, um, your ego protects you. Your ego is that facade. It is that person that you've built up, like, for people to like you, like, however you want a chameleon. So there is a part of your ego that does work for you, but... First and foremost, you have to identify the voices in your head. Now, I know there are people in the world that do not have an inner monologue, and I don't understand that because no. I got I got inner monologue all day long, and I'm also clairaudient in this year specifically. So there's always people talking, always. So one of my favorite affirmations that I found, and I – I would have to Google actually says it, so I'll quote it. It says, I am asserting the mastery of my real self. So in any moment where you realize that your ego is there or coming up, you're like, okay, I just walked into a room, right? I thought I was going to be super cool. Now I'm supremely anxious. Like my tone of voice changed. Kind of bitchy, right? Yeah. Kind of like, kind of put my walls up. Like I don't really know how to read people talking about the voices like dude i have full conversations with myself like verbally mm -hmm. and i was on tiktok live last night where i i just got done working on an axe handle like putting my axe together viking axe and i'm sitting there and something happened i was like motherfucker are you fucking serious like sitting here talking to myself and i'm like oh shit you guys are here <laughs> you like, guys are here y'all caught me in a conversation with myself see I but i think that's healthy I think it's sold to us as like, ooh, watch out. You're 
mislabeled as like schizophrenic and only like again it's like neg it's something negative that's been programmed to us that if we did it that we're crazy but one of the first things that I learned is like mirror affirmations and auditing the way that you talk to yourself in the mirror so if you wake yeah. up in the morning and you're brushing your teeth you're like wow you look like fucking shit should have done that Did it, you know what I mean like you're just like you're programming yourself to hate yourself more so yeah. when I had to start first talking to myself in my head and reprogramming all of those negative things and just truly being nice to Cheyenne um I had to split myself into kind of like the devil angel in a way and like my mean voice would come in and I would just be like, now, why did we talk to ourselves like that? Like, why did we do that? You know, and eventually it got to the point where, I mean, I did, I've done inner child work. I mean, this, all the, the fun modalities that you can go through. I feel like I overuse that word, but I'm trying to like paint a picture in people's mind that there are so many options out there. But I got to a point where I actually worked um, side by side with um, a retreat that I went on and I did breath work and yoga. And then they also wanted me to be a part of the program, which uh, don't ever do that. You can't be a practitioner and a client at the same time. So for anybody to ask you that is kind of a red flag. I didn't know it at the time because I really, really admired the person I was working with. Um, but direct experience is the best way to learn, right? So. I'm sitting there and I'm trying to explain why I have instances that when I tell stories that I talk about myself in third person. And since her knowledge in psychology went this far and like that's that's where her belief system was, right? Um, yeah. She actually, I think in some weird way, believed that like there was a crazy part of me that she was like, you're actually not healed if you talk about yourself in third person. And I was like... Well, actually, you know, and this wasn't a conversation that we had, but if we ever did, I would be like, actually, if you do some more research, as humbly as I can put it, um, it's very healthy to pull all of yourselves apart. And I have like an avatar of each one of myself. And if I want to go into meditate and I want to talk to eight-year-old Cheyenne to figure out why eight-year-old Cheyenne actually doesn't talk back to me yet, that is a supremely healthy way to find out what happened to me in my past what isn't healthy is listening to just the way that you think that people should be healed you know but have you have you seen lucifer the film oh yeah okay so so you were talking about like the angel and the demon side mm -hmm. and, and i call it good lucifer and bad lucifer because <laughs> <laughs> there's a good lucifer and a bad lucifer Yes, so I actually, um, let's see, how old was I? I was 19 years old, and I always I always get messages and dreams. I could go down a whole spiritual rabbit hole, but another time. Anyways, I'd wake up from dreams, and a lot of the times I would get messages. Um, now I understand it's like spirit team, higher self type stuff talking to me. And I woke up, and I was like, oh, my gosh, dude, take me to the tattoo shop. I just saw these tattoos that, like, have to be on me right now. And my friend was like, Okay, like he he kind of knows that I'm like off the wall anyway, so it's like it really wasn't a surprise to him. So he drove me to the tattoo shop and I tattooed the devil's advocate on my shoulder blades. At the time I was living out of a completely destructive ego 
And um, like the tattoo artist was like putting them on me. I was almost falling asleep because the vibration felt really good. And he was like, why are you doing this? And I was like, well, I already hear these voices in my head. I'm like, and every day I wake up, I'm trying to decide which voice to listen to. And I said, at this point, I'm just going to let people let me decide how I'm going to treat you because every time I'm nice and then someone comes back to me not nice, I do want to turn into Lucifer and be like, how dare you? I was nice. Like, why are you being mean to me? So I was like, I'm going to let you decide. Cheyenne's always caught in the middle. And I, I was trying to, I guess, comedically and artistically tell people around me. I'm like, I have two voices in my head, kind of like you guys do. And it's like, do you want to take the good route or the bad route? Which technically they're both your routes. It's whatever you want to choose. But for the longest time, I mean, you know, I wore like halters for the longest time. Like anywhere I went, people would be like, oh, got devil angel on you, huh? Which one am I talking to? And I'm like, I haven't decided yet. I'm a little confused. Like I'm a little perturbed by your energy. So I've had those, I've had those for a while and they've definitely been like a guiding point for me, especially studying duality and going into other concepts. But yeah, the devil's advocate was definitely kind of a saving grace at that time for me because it was one of, one of the first times. Yeah, you get it. We all have it. That's a really cool tattoo. It's not, it's not done. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's like one of my oldest tattoos. Are we all ever done with our tattoos? Like, is yeah, this just going to be a something. conversation about tattoos? Because let's. There's, all, there's always something wrong with tattoos, and you got to fix it. And then it's like, if I don't like the way that it looks. You yeah, I have uh, my my friend Adam actually does my tattoos, um, and he's done them. Oh my gosh, for so many years, and I will just come home with like the craziest stuff, and I'm like, I need. I need this, I need a Merkaba, I need a consciousness symbol, like, you don't understand, man, and he's just like, okay, Shy, whatever you need, yes. Like, he's, like, super into it, and then he's, like, super on the cusp of, hey, someone just gave me selenite, what am I supposed to do with this shit, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I got to this, I'm at this point now in my life where I've decided what I want to do with the tattoos in my body, my left side is going to be my my Celtic side, because I'm Irish, can't tell by the beard. And then my right side is going to be my Norse pagan side. Um, and it's going to be controversial, but I'm going to put a berserker ruin on my, on my, my uh, forearm. Yeah, I've seen that. I know. I know. I've seen that. That's the first thing I picked out. Yes. Um, so I am German, Irish, thanks to my brother's little DNA test. We had like, I mean, we had slivers of everything, right? Because... Come on, our bloodlines are very mixed at this point. But higher percentage of German, Irish, and then we found a smaller percentage of Scandinavian. Um, So for the longest time, we were told that we had indigenous blood, which I totally believe because everyone's like, what? What's going on here? Um, So we have a a crazy family story that I won't get into. Um, But basically, I was really confused because we lost our family fortune because one of our um, ancestors, I guess you can call them now, um, married outside of the bloodline, right? So we're right, super racist. So um, we knew for the longest time that it was basically a Native American woman, an indigenous to say it correctly, like way fucking back there. Um, and it like 
the dark hair would pop out, the eyes, the, the skin tone and all of that will just pop out randomly, um, which I think's great. Like, I love everything about however my DNA makes me want to look. So, but being a kid learning this, right, when we're all realizing how racist our families are, um, back in the day, when we did the, the blood test, I was really confused because I was like, well, that's not indigenous, it's Scandinavian. So then it took me on a whole completely different um, path into like Norse, Scandinavia, Druids, the Vikings, and I started studying their trade routes and when they actually hit America for the first time. So like people from Scandinavia actually came to America like thousands of years before Columbus ever did. And not only did they establish trade routes with the natives of America, but they intermingled with the tribes. So if my bloodline were technically indigenous, but back then they would have, you know, mingled with my ancestors, it technically would have been correct that um, that woman was indigenous, but by that time, that Scandinavian bloodline would have probably, you know, mingled with that too. So due to that DNA test, I was able to kind of go on a different historical route of my bloodline. And that is where I started looking into Norse and Celtic and Druidic society. And I have no proof, but maybe because I love storytelling so much and the way that I'm able to recap stories from however long ago, like I have to believe there's something Druid in our bloodline, but I would just have no idea or way to exhibit it besides going back and looking at history and war. So when the Druids were actually like tried to kill off and they went underground, a huge portion of them went to Ireland. So if you have like a big percentage of like Irish blood, it'd probably be smart of you to kind of go back into the ways of not only like what they're still doing in Norway today practicing, but all of those countries over there they have a thick history that I think people disregard because they're so programmed into, oh, you're American. Yeah. When realistically, we're all immigrants, no matter what our skin color is. Like, I mean, obviously we're not first generation. So like, yeah. let's underline that so we don't have anybody coming on being weird about it. But anybody from America came from somewhere else. Just like anybody living on earth is not from earth. You were just born here, you know? Yeah. Which we don't have to get into soul origin. I'd much rather get into your story. Um, I've gotten. I, I love. I love you know fantasy stuff. And uh, more recently, within the past few years, I've gotten into it. And, and uh, people are like, "You look like Gimli," and I was like, "I do." I do. Yes. I look like Gimli. I look like Gimli. And then you also right. said Gandalf. Even though Gandalf. it's not like the white beard, but you have I've, a... I've gotten Gandalf. I've gotten Dumbledore. Uh, I have gotten uh, Opie from Sons of Anarchy. Uh, Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got Duck Dynasty, Alaskan Bush people. Obviously Duck Dynasty, right? Yeah, I think that the most like unique one was... Well, in my story, I'll tell you about when I was in jail. But um, <laughs> I was told I looked like a... Like a biker garden gnome, because I'm five, I'm like five five. I'm short for a dude, and I found that so comical that the dude said I look like a biker uh, garden gnome. I was like, you know what, dude, this tops. I've got leprechaun. Yes. 
there's nothing original in what anybody says. I'm just kind of like, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, you never know. I mean, I have a lady that talks about soul origins from, like, other dimensions after we left creation. So if you think of, like, the elemental realm is where, like, fairies, dragons, gnomes, all of those exist. And um, Dolores Cannon's research talks about a warning being sent out to everybody. So a bunch of different, basically, extraterrestrials incarnated on Earth as humans, right? So she'll actually um, talk about where your soul origin is from and then talk to you about the spirit animals around you that are actually helping and guiding. And there is a huge influx of elementals either incarnated on the third wave or continuously being incarnated because they're all about like truly saving Mother Earth and their higher vibrational frequency beings which is why they also um, say that like all of the like ADHD and attention deficit, all of those different characteristics are on the rise because we're actually having um, a higher level of high frequency beings incarnating. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I I fail to believe that that there is not other dimensions. Like, but that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> we could do it another time. I told you I tree branch all the time, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, tell me, tell me about your story growing up in, you know, a family of addictions and kind of how it led you to your work now. Okay, so um, I preface my story by saying I feel like I was born in addiction and I was born into trauma um, because moment I was born, dad wasn't around. Well, not the moment I was born. First four years of my life, dad wasn't around. Um, I don't remember much. Um, but some of the things I do remember is the stuff behind me. I'm a huge professional wrestling fan. I love wrestling. I've watched it since my first memory in life is watching wrestling. Um, and so, you know, I, I love professional wrestling. And um, so I, I learned... Um, I learned some of these things when I was when I was younger, like professional wrestling and 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 you know, um, unhealthy unhealthy habits. You know, um, my mom was an alcoholic uh, as well as as uh, as an addict. Um, and then when my dad came around, uh, quickly found out my dad was an addict as well. The first bit um, of of interaction I remember having with my dad was being in the bathtub at the age of for and um, splashing around, you know, like, kids do that, right? I got kids; they did that shit when when they were younger, splashing around in the tub. Uh, but apparently, my dad did not like the fact that the floor got wet, and he took a belt to me. Um, quickly after that, um, we had child services come to the house, and they took us away. Um, I was put in foster care for about six months, where we lived with these uber religious family. Um, but they kind of gave us what we wanted, right? So, like, um, I was, I had, like, trash bags full of, like, these little Hasbro wrestling figures. And I could play with them all day, every day, if I wanted to. Um, but once again, when you give a kid everything that they want, it becomes a little bit hard to handle. Um, one day we get a knock on the door, and my equally as religious grandparents show up and are like, hey, we have custody of you guys now. Come live with us. Now, I grew up um, predominantly most of my life in Sharpsburg, Maryland, 
in Sharpsburg is where the Antietam battlefield is. Um, so the Civil War had been, uh, like, like historical Civil War had been a part of my life for a very, very, very long time. And um, also, I grew up in this weird triangle. So you had the Antietam battlefield here. You had um, the Battle of Frederick over here uh, at top. And then down below, you had Harpers Ferry, which is, like, if you know a lot about Civil War, that's where, like, John Brown was captured, where he was hung uh, for, for um, helping slave escape to the north. Um, but also in that weird triangle is where the Blair Witch Project was filmed. Yeah, yeah. So at a young age, I grew this very unhealthy fear of the woods at night. So much so that, like, so much so that, like, um, as an adult, I won't go in the woods at night. I'll look at them, but I won't go into them. Um, I guess it's a fear of the unknown. But going back into it, um, I learned um, as a young as a young kid. Um, that um, God is love and God is fear, right? You, you love them out of fear. You don't love them out of respect. You love them out of fear. And that's kind of how I started, you know, being raised and being groomed, I guess you'd say, um, went out to be an adult. Um, my grandparents were Mennonites, so that's just a step above Amish. And uh, so we had everything. I mean, we had the car. We had TVs, radio, um, you know, we went out to dinner. We didn't make our own food. I've had people ask if, or no, we, we didn't make our own clothes. I've had people ask that before. I was like, it's kind of weird to ask, but I mean, understandable. Um, but there, there was a certain style of dress that you wore that men wore, women wore. Men, you know, men were out in the, out and doing the hard jobs and women were at home. You know, more traditional old mindset. Uh, there's nothing progressive about it. Um, but um, my grandfather was a Vietnam veteran, um, and my grandmother was a nurse. My, my grandma was uh, a traveling nurse, so she would go to certain people's houses. And then after a while, losing a, a one client, she just said, I can't do it anymore. So she ended up staying at home, being an at-home grandma. Uh, but my grandma was very narcissistic, very abusive, mentally and emotionally. Um, and, and not just toward us, but toward my my dad and my uncle when they were younger, and then to my grandfather. Um, I hold my grandfather to such high esteem. So would you that, say uh, that that's a lot of generational trauma that she held on yeah. to and obviously passed on to you? Like you have to wonder where she got it from or where her parents got it from, right, when you look up the chain? Oh, absolutely, yeah. She, you know, um, you know, so from my understanding that the way that she treated my dad and my uncle and the way she treated me, my sister is the same way that she was treated by her mother, and I don't know how far back that goes. So yeah, I would I would say generational trauma is a huge part of it. Um, but my grandfather did the best he could, you know, to, to provide for us and, and everything like that. And I lived in, in Maryland for for uh, about six years, and um, I. I big into sports, but I was a super nerd, right? Like, I'm not the person that I was. I, I, you know, when, when my kids say that they get bullied at school, I pull a picture of myself when I was in their grade, and I have, I have this buzz cut and these 
big-ass pink plastic glasses on with a striped ugly shirt. And I'm like, look, you would make fun of me too, right? And they're like, well, probably. I was like, okay, look, it's not so bad. Like, it'll be okay. Um, You know, just got to get through some of these rough times right now. Um, But, you know, it, it... Life at that time as a kid was was pretty rough, you know, because I had a lot to do with at school, but then I had a lot to do with at home. And my dad ended up coming back around. Um, My dad and my mom, um, because we had been taken away from my sister and I had been taken away from my my dad and my mom, um, child services was trying to figure out who the problem was, right? They're like, is he the problem? Is she the problem? Is it both of them? Is it just a matter of circumstance? And one day, they um, they showed up to my dad's house unexpected, unannounced, and they seen my mom screaming and yelling at my dad and said, she's the problem. And so they didn't say anything to anybody. They didn't let anybody know. My dad and my mom, just by coincidence, split up. My dad moved up to Erie, Pennsylvania, which is like equal distance between Ohio and New York right on Lake Erie. Um, and when that happened, child services was like, hey, you can have custody of your kids now. It's my dad. And yeah, yeah. And wow. So, yeah, yeah. Without knowing anything else. Mm-hmm. So, um, my dad filed for custody of us, but gave us the option, or gave me the option of where I wanted to live. And it, it, it's not like it really mattered either. But from, you know, being a kid you know, from, from being a young child to, you know, even a few, just a few years ago, I'd always strive for my dad's attention. I'd always strive for my dad's love and affection. Um, everything that I did was to please my dad. Um, but I never, I never would achieve it um, because um, I was searching for something that I never had. And um, so... Um, one day they pull us into, into this McDonald's and it's me and my sister and my dad and his wife and my grandparents and they're like, where do you want to live? You can have the option to live with your mom or your dad or us. Well, I mean, you put us under that pressure, like we're going to give you the answer that you want. So I was like, you know, I'm going to live with my dad. So that weekend, the custody hearing happened. My dad was granted custody by default because my mom didn't show up. And because she was high. And so that very weekend, we got moved up to Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, completely detached. Huge cultural shock from going from a country living to a city living. Um, I'm pretty sure you can understand that one. You know, going from country to, to city living, where I lived in the backwoods of Maryland in a mountain, and I had nobody that I was friends with in my neighborhood to all of a sudden there's kids piling on my porch and like we're out there until the sun, you know, the sun goes down and the lights are coming up. So Um, just to interrupt really quick. Yes, I do. Uh, My parents got divorced in 91 and I was born in 91. So all I know my whole life is having two homes and one was in a small town and the other one was in the country. We, you know, eventually hopped around until we find like more permanent homes like all through our childhood. But yeah, like our weekends were spent on the farm with dogs, animals, trees, four wheelers, gravel roads. And we were also very fortunate to have our grandparents and our cousins and our aunt and uncles around the same property because we all 
you know, bought property around the same places. And then when we like went to school, it was still a very small town. I mean, I would say the first town I grew up in, it was called Golden. And we would say we have yield signs through the town and we have stop signs on the outskirts of the town because it touched a highway. But we had, um, we had a gas station that got built around the time I could ride my bike up there to get food. Our local hangout was the library and the local grocery store was two steps away so you could go get a bag of Cheetos and go watch a movie in the library when it got hot. And I think when I was like between the ages of eight and 10, we actually, they raised enough money to redo all of the playground equipment in our park. And it's still there to this day, which is really cool because it means it really held out. But that small town life with all the kids and then the farm life, I had both of them. And I feel very, very fortunate to have them. But also looking back, you're like, this is quite the transition going back and forth. Like, who am I? You know, what part of me fits in this life and what part of me fits in this life? Absolutely. So, um, so quickly moving after uh, up to Erie, Pennsylvania, like uh, it was a culture shock, but it was also a, a learning curve, right? Because like um, now I had to learn how to to tiptoe around my dad. Um, I still had an unhealthy fear of my dad at that time, and a um, lot of eggshells for sure. Oh, a lot of eggshells. Eggshells is all I walked on. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, nothing was ever good enough. Um, I had a stepdad like that when I was younger. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, well, it sucked because there were parts of him that I really, really liked. Like he taught me, he taught me music and Seinfeld and whose line is it anyway? Like he taught me a lot of really great things, but I really always felt like he was just, he like got off on disciplining us. He was like, aha, I have justification to do X, Y, Z to you. And I'm just like, dude, you found a candy wrapper in the driveway and the wind could have blown it in. What do you mean? We're having a family meeting right now to decide if you're going to quote unquote discipline us. Like, I love you. Why are you doing this? I'm five. What's going on? There's a lot of irrational parents out there, you know, especially step parents too. Mm. Um, For sure. So, so, um, you know, uh, my dad, Everything was fine with my dad for a few months, and then my dad started getting really strict on me and my sister. Meanwhile, I had a brother that was in the middle of us that was from another woman, uh, but nothing happened to my brother. My, my brother literally could go out and massacre a whole village. My dad would never pay attention, but it was me and my sister. Consistently. Interesting. And, uh, do you think it had a lot more to do with the fact that it was like, like, he was taking out the anger that he didn't take out on your mother on you? Oh, I'm going to tell you exactly why a little bit later on, because I found the answer out. Awesome. So, um, you know, aggression, the aggre- his aggressive side turned to my sister, mm-hmm. who at the time was... Which, as a uh, female, my heart breaks for that. Oh, yeah, I, I understand. And, and it started out with pressure points, slaps at the back of the head, Never got to fist, but it was getting close. And um, it got to a point where my dad consistently was doing these things and making her life hell to the point where, like, Harry Potter, when he was locked in the basement or locked under, you know, the stairs, it became a reality for her. Like, he put padlocks on her door. Mm. And um, 
I always strove to protect my sister. You know, I tried, but I mean, my dad never looked at me and then, and boom, okay, fuck you, kid. He would always, okay, get out of my face. I'm dealing with her. And so, I uh, can't remember what day, but there, there's a day in, in, in the summer, like right after school. My, dude, we had it and lived up there like a year. And he was like, I can't take your sister's shit anymore. Hey, she's five years old, dude. What, what, what shit is she giving you that you can't take? And uh, he was like, I'm just letting you. And he did this completely out of anger, knowing that what he was doing. He, uh, he looked at me and he was like, your sister's not my biological daughter. So therefore, I don't have to take care of her. And I had no idea. Wow. No clue. As, as, as a young kid, nine, ten years old, being told that, you know, your sister is not your full-blood sister. I mean, it didn't really matter because she practically is. Um, and that this, this person is going to rip you from everything you've known. The only consistency in your life is going to rip that from you. So I sent my sister back down to Maryland with my grandparents. And so that fucking ripped me apart. And I can't vocalize that to my dad because he, he's an angered asshole. I mean, the whole time he's drinking. The whole time he's, he's, he's drugging. Nobody knows that he's drugging, but everybody knows he's drinking. And um, when we get back up to Pennsylvania, um, that aggression that was on her shifted to me, and it would stay there until I turned 18. Um, and it started out with slaps, you know, fucking pressure points. Um, then it turned to like verbal assaults, emotional, mental abuse, a lot of that. I've been called almost every name under the book, uh, even even back in the day when, you know, and I try to explain this to people. Like, like now if somebody says, oh, you're gay, that's kind of like a good thing, right? Like, oh, you're gay. Well, yeah, I mean, that's cool. But being called gay at the age of, 11, 12, 13 years old, not knowing what that means. And, and you go into school and hearing that's a derogatory thing, like that fucks you up. Um, and so... Well, it's more yeah. meant, sorry to interrupt you, but it's more like gay's original etymology was happy, right? Like yeah. back in the day. And then it transferred into men calling other men gay as you're overly feminine or yeah. it is it's bad to like other men. So you're right, it's completely derogatory, but there are two ways that you could say it. It's you're, you're feminine or you like men, which yeah. to the over-masculated collective that's like, no, no, there's nothing gay about me. You know, that could yeah. be twisted in a multitude of ways. Absolutely. And so, like, he used that in derogatory ways. Um, and then, you know, one of my most fond memories of being a kid, not fond as a good thing, but fond as most memorable, is I don't remember what happened. What, like, I don't know if he was in a bad mood or I did something, but I was in the kitchen. Um, we had this island um, that had you know, bar stools around it, and there was a stove there, and um, I'm sitting there, and he backed me up against the island, and then he grabbed me by the throat twisted me in the air and just squeezed and looked at me and, and it was like I was looking in his eyes and it was not him and he was like I'm gonna fucking kill you he straight up said that and like I believed it full fledged believed it and um, my stepmom literally had to peel his fingers from around my throat and um, that's where like the ultimate 
fear of my dad started. Like, I was terrified of my dad. It had nothing to do with respect out of fear at that point. I was scared of my dad. I did everything in my power to stay away. Um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I don't cope with things. Well, uh, we do. We have co good coping skills. And, well, healthy coping skills, unhealthy coping skills. And my unhealthy coping skills, I just go to sleep. I didn't have to deal with the day, so I, I would go to sleep. And I did that. Um, I would sleep for hours. Yeah, exactly. Which I'd like to interject on that because after studying brainwaves, um, the delta brainwave is what goes through all of, like, fixes your problems in your sleep, so to speak. So after I studied that, I realized, like, the the naps and going to sleep and a lot of people that are, like, chronically de depressed that, like, stay in bed and sleep all the time, they either, you know, have an overreactive frequency that they're going into, but the delta brainwave is um, an addictive brainwave to get into for people that literally like shut down and go to sleep. They're like, whatever, I'm going to bed. Um, and I just recently connected that with someone that I met because just like you, they're like, they get into a fight, they, you know, they turn into an asshole. And then literally the only thing they do to deflect the situation or the reality as a whole, they go to sleep, they'll wake up two hours later, they act like nothing happened and they had no idea what happened to them when they slept. They just knew that they felt better, quote unquote. And when I explained to them, I was like, it's your Delta brainwave. I said, do your own research and um, find out that going to sleep is actually working against you because you're still not facing the problem. You just kind of think you are and you're restarting the bad habits over and over that lead you down the pathway. So it is a crazy cycle. I'm glad that you brought that up. So 9-11 uh, happened, uh, I was in seventh grade, and I remember it very fondly. Uh, I'm not going to go into where were you on 9-11, uh, on but I remember it very fondly. I remember coming home, watching the news, and like, <clears throat> my dad kind of like, well, we got to do something about this. I'm like, fuck are you going to do, man? Like, what? you're not going to do a damn thing. And uh, so at that, at that point, I started looking at the idols and people I idolized in my life. The only real idol that I had was my grandfather. He was a Marine. I wanted to be a Marine. And that's what, that's what I, that's my initial thought was like, I want to be a Marine. And so, uh, you know, I didn't tell my dad that. Um, just because I, I just didn't feel that connection with him. I didn't feel the trust. And so, um, long story short, the abuse continued to happen. Um, it got even um, and, and one day I, I came home and I had this like Marine poster. I was in ROTC in high school and I had this Marine poster that was like was super cool. It was like really one of the coolest ones I've ever seen. It was like a special ops one. I had like, like, like a dude, like a dude in a ghillie suit with, you know, in a swamp, half of his body, the other half is like, is like gridded out. I was like, that's yeah, so cool, man. So I put it up there. My dad one day walks in my room, which he never walked in my room. So, I mean, it was one of these days he walked in my room, seen the poster. He was like, do you want to be a Marine? And then, like, he got really upset and walked away. And that that got made everything worse for me. And I don't know why. I, to this day, I have no, no idea why. But um, from that day forward, everything got worse. He was like, he was, and I know it would get bad, and, and, and we'll call it a session, uh, because he would say, go outside and practice falling down. 
And what that meant was he's going to fuck my shit up worse than any than the time before. So he would throw me from fence post to fence post and come back to the back of the head with an elbow. And, and, and as you know, that creates a neurological disconnection in your brain, right? Because you're striking the spinal cord, which connects everything. Mm-hmm. And, and so he was doing that. Boom, boom, boom. And then we had this cement garage, and he would do that in the garage. And he would throw baseballs at me. And, and like, it, everything was an all-time high. And when I was in 10th grade, uh, he was... I, I was working. Uh, I was in marching band, and I had school, and then I had everything going on at home. And my life was just this weird array of being completely accepted and then not being accepted at all. And there was no there there was no gray. It was black or white. That's how my life was. And um, so I would go to school, and that was where I found peace. I would go to marching band. That's where I found peace. I would go to work, and I found peace at work. I worked at McDonald's. I found peace there, which is weird. But then I'd get home, and it was complete chaos. And that was my cycle. And um, so I was failing at school. I was failing one class. My dad got completely shitty with me to the point where um, he had other people watch over me in the neighborhood. And I was failing at school because, one, I found no interest in in the subject I was failing, uh, but also because things were happening at home. My other grades were slipping, but they weren't as bad as this one. And uh, so I had other people watch over me to make sure I was doing my work and, and stuff like that. Um, and then if I wasn't doing my work, uh, he would punish me at the end of the week with the same things that happened before. Uh, he was a truck driver, so he was gone all week. He put, he, he, he put his garbage on other people which I don't look at myself as garbage, but that's how I looked at myself back then was as garbage. And then he would come home, punish me, and then it happened repeatedly. Uh, all the while, when my dad would get home, he'd get fucking super drunk all the time. Like, from the moment that he walked in our door after getting off the road to the moment that he's getting back on the road, he stayed drunk. And it didn't matter if he was driving to somebody's house or driving home, going to the store, whatnot. He was always drunk. Um, if I was in the car with him, he was drunk. Uh, we would pull into the garage after a night of him getting absolutely obliterated, and he would shut the garage doors, open the windows, keep the car running, and put music on. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't understand what that does to the human body until later on. So, um, at the end of my 10th grade year, uh, my dad got my report card and seen that I was failing and decided that he was going to kick me out of the house. And they chased me around the, the neighborhood with a phone book, and his justification was, it doesn't leave a mark. So if I fuck you up, you're not, nobody will know, and it would just be hearsay. And so uh, he kicked me out, and I ended up moving back down with my grandparents, uh, which in that time I started getting back into my found a religion that I, I, I fell into and it wasn't Norse pagan it was like it's crazy because like I went to all these extremes of different religions uh, and it was Pentecostal and like I was like you know holy roller Jesus like you know all this other stuff and um, I wanted to go to Bible college to be a pastor uh, and I hadn't talked to my dad in like six months and he decides to call one day and I tell him like you know I want to go to college to be a pastor and he's like absolutely not I'm joining the army, and I said, no, I'm not. We had this fight over it. He came, he 
came to uh, he came down to to Maryland to ensure that I signed a contract with the Army. I was 17 at the time. He drove me to the recruiting station. He said, "You're going to sign a contract today. I don't give a fuck what job it is." Just to interject, this man makes no sense at all. Yep. Oh, I'm 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 aware. <laughs> I'm aware. So. I signed a contract in April of 2006, uh, on, uh, and I was slated to deploy, or not deploy, but I was slated to go to basic training in um, July of 2006. Uh, I, my first day in basic training was my birthday, July 11th. Um, before then, um, my dad moved me back up to Maryland. Um, or sorry, back up to Pennsylvania. And all the abuse hit an all-time high, like all-time high. I was literally exercising multiple times a day, running 15 miles a day at a five or a six-minute pace, which if you're a runner, you, that, that's fast as shit. Nobody can run an, an extended period of time at a six-minute pace. But I, he was having me do it. Um, and it got so bad to the point where there was like a weightlifting coach that seen me doing this every day, and he my dad and said, if you don't stop, I'm calling child services. So the only reason my dad stopped was because his coach called him out on his shit. So I go to basic, or you know, I go to MEPS to, to start my processing and everything like that. My dad drops me off. There's not so much as a, I love you, um, good luck. He literally, when I shut the door, he drove off. And I was like, that's all the confirmation I need, right? My dad didn't want me. My dad didn't care about me. He didn't give a fuck about me. I could die tomorrow, and he wouldn't care. Uh, I'm, I'm no longer his problem. And that's exactly the word you said. You said, you're no longer my problem. Like, I did something so far-fetched, so wrong, that I was the worst fucking kid in the world. So I go to basic uh, at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Uh, I hate Oklahoma. It's terrible. But I thrived in it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to Oklahoma. I do. I love Oklahoma. That's why uh, I'm laughing. I'm like, I don't know what part of Oklahoma you went to, but please let me show you some wonderful Tulsa, parts of it. Tulsa, Oklahoma is the worst place in the world. I live, oh no, is that where I did training? Tulsa, Tulsa's just a different Not town. Tulsa, sorry. Lawton, Lawton, my bad. Not Tulsa. Okay, I've never been to Lawton. I've worked out Lawton, of Tulsa terrible. before. They have, well, they have great concert venues, but I'm a really big fan of Grove, Oklahoma, specifically Grand Lake, you know, and I'm a really big nature person. So I was like, for anybody listening, especially in Oklahoma, sorry, we all have our own opinions. <laughs> Don't base your opinions off of what I said. Yeah, 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 for sure. But I'm laughing because, like, my, my, my state where I'm like, I never want to go back there is Nebraska. And it's because of a travel experience I had going through Nebraska, like from, I think we were leaving like Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I got into a different car to finish the rest of the trip. And it was three girls trying to figure out a place to stay in Nebraska. And I mean, it, it was quite the adventure to say the least. <laughs> um, so I joined the army and I went to basic training and like, um, I, I did well, you know, um, I thrived under the chaos. It didn't bother me. Them screaming and yelling wasn't anything new to me, so it didn't really fuck me up. Yeah, you're like, um, I'm going to graduate. Yeah, yeah, I was like, this is super easy. Like, physically demanding, it wasn't physically demanding to me because I was already under under a lot of uh, physical stress, so it didn't bother me. 
I stayed at Oklahoma for my AIT. Um, and then they were like, hey, yeah, by the way, uh, you have the option to go airborne. And I was like, well, what the fuck is that? And they're like, jumping out of a good airplane. And I was like, why not? So I went to airborne school at Fort Benning, Georgia. And um, my first duty station was Italy, Vicenza, Italy. And um, Europe, there's no alcohol, or there, there's no age limit on alcohol, right? And um, when I was a kid, I always told myself, like, I'm never going to drink, never going to smoke, never going to do drugs. Um, you and me both, bud. Said, I'm never going to do this because I see the way my dad is. Um, but that first weekend, I broke one of my promises. Um, and I got really fucked up. Um, you know, I thought I was having a good time. I was doing this because, like, I'm having a good time. Now, it's not my first drink, but it was my first huge amount of drinks. Like, and my first drink was when I was four years old. And that was because somebody wasn't watching me. And I snuck in and grabbed my, mom, my mom's wine coolers and killed a six-pack. Um, but, um, I end up getting really shit faced, um, that first weekend. And, uh, I, that, that very first drink I, I say is, is the moment that got addicted. Um, cause I, I liked the way it made me feel because I was out of control of my body. Right. So I, if I did something dumb that night, I could just be like, it was the alcohol. It wasn't me. I didn't fuck. In my right mind, I wouldn't make that choice. Well, absolutely, in my right mind, I would never make that choice. Um, so I, I get assigned to the Second Battalion, Five Hundred Third, in the One Seventy Third Airborne Brigade, and they're slated for a deployment in May to Afghanistan. Um, that deployment would have been the worst deployment in the history of that unit. Um, not not worse. There, there was a lot of casualties, a lot of death, but. Uh, we also had a documentary crew that was out with my platoon, and they filmed two documentaries. Well, it was initially supposed to be one, but it was ended up being two. It was Cornwall and Restrepo, and um, uh, that one really showed the country like what the fuck was actually happening in in, in Afghanistan because every, everybody seemed to forget. Everybody seemed to forget that Afghanistan was a thing, and um, so. I get back from that deployment and like I wasn't even 30 minutes off the plane. I was back in my room getting shit-faced. Um, and I continued to get shit-faced until I met a woman. And I'm not going to say her name. I just don't want to name drop her. Uh, but uh, she was Italian. She showed me interest. And I said, somebody cares about me. So I'm yours. And uh, yeah, uh, I ended up proposing to her right before my second deployment at the Castle Romeo um super romantic uh everything like that dualistically um, romantic yeah yes yeah. for sure and, and um so uh i ended up going on my second deployment mind you in that time frame she looked at me and she's like if you don't stop drinking like i'm leaving i didn't want to feel that loss right because i already lost a few family members uh because they didn't want to deal with my shit or deal with my shit so uh, I said, yeah, fine, I'll, I'll quit drinking. But I was doing it for the wrong reasons. I wasn't doing it for myself. I wasn't working any program. I go on deployment, and in that middle of that deployment, I got a few emails saying, hey, she's cheating on you. And I was like, no, no, she's not. She promised me, right? A promise is a promise. That's a word. That's your bond. 
And then I got pictures. It, it destroyed me. Absolutely I was like destroyed. supremely devastating. Even to hear yeah. it, I'm just like, oh. It was worse than a Dear John letter. I would be able to deal with a Dear John letter, but that was worse. That was like absolutely heartbreaking, heart-wrenching. And then I got to this point where I said, I don't care if I live or die. Um, so doing things that were like uh, irrational even for me. Um, and then I went on R&R. <laughs> and in that two weeks of R&R, the 18 days, I wasn't sober one bit. And like I was doing everything, everything you can think of, with the exception of like, uh, injecting things in my body or uh, smoking crack or meth. Like I, I was doing coke, acid, smoking weed, getting drunk. I didn't care. I didn't care if I lived or died. Like, I, I was I was still so fucked up. When I got back to Afghanistan, I was still hungover. And that was, like, a week later. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, shortly after that, like, I, like, I went on leave in September, got back late September, early October. We were leaving in November. So it was just a short segue for when I got back, I started drinking again. And <clears throat> I drank, and I met another woman um, in a bar and it just so happened that she was the woman that sent me the pictures and I had no idea who she was. I didn't put one and one together until a few years later. Um, and, uh, her and I ended up getting married. Um, I fell in love with her. She showed me this attention that I was looking for. Um, ended up getting orders to Fort Bragg in North Carolina and we ended up going there. First weekend there, found out she was pregnant. And so now I got this kid on the way. And I was like, I'm going to be a better dad than my dad was to me. Like, uh, I don't want her, my, my kid to be raised the way that I was raised. You know, she deserves better. And, but, but in the meantime, like, I'm still drinking. Still drinking. And um, so uh, one thing leads to another. I get that ultimatum again. Stop drinking or I'm leaving. And once again, like, I, I lost somebody, a bunch of people already. I said, you know, I, got I, I don't need to drink it. So I quit drinking. But I didn't really quit drinking because she didn't. She never seen me drinking. But there was alcohol at my, at, at my, to my access. So um, addictive behaviors continue in my life. And um, so I go on my third deployment. By far my worst deployment. Um, one, they didn't sign, um, or they, they signed a memorandum that said that uh, the only emergency leave that you could take is a death of a family member. They didn't care about births, none of that. And my, at the time, wife was going to be giving birth to my daughter in the middle of that deployment, so I wouldn't be able to go home for it. And that devastated me. Um, but I, I kind of knew. But also, um, my best friend, uh, he was our, our Meinhound guy, which is like the metal detector guy. Like, he was the guy that led the way and made sure that nobody, you know, that there's no IEDs there, marked IEDs, kept us safe. Um, May 30th, 2012, uh, I lost my best friend. He, uh, he stepped on an IED. Um, I seen it happen. Um, I watched him take his last breath, and it was the most catastrophic thing in my life to ever happen. Like, I could deal with my dad kicking the shit out of me. I could deal with my dad saying, you know, what he said to me. Um, 
and acting the way that he did toward me, but I couldn't deal with watching somebody pass. And that would devastate me and wreck my shit for 10 years. Um, I didn't know how to um, cope with it in a, in a productive man, uh, manner. And um, yeah, so I got home and uh, I had this new kid that was, that was there, beautiful redheaded daughter um, that we aptly named Emrose. And um, I had a new lease on life, but I had this nagging, two, two or three nagging things in the back of my brain, my best friend, and this addiction. And so she got, my daughter got to an age where I was like, okay, you know, I can drink, and we can drink, and we'll have a good time. And we started drinking, and I fell back into addictive behaviors really quick. But I was drinking uh, out of spite at this time. Like, I wasn't drinking. I was drinking because I was feeling some kind of way, and, and like I needed to feel some form of relief, and I thought that was my answer, even though everybody said alcohol is not the thing, like not your answer. You know, um, uh, addiction is not your thing, uh, or, or alcohol is not the answer. Uh, it's going to lead you down a slippery path, and I was like, eh, I'll deal with it when I get to it. Uh, just to interject really quick, the way that alcohol is presented to us in society, I mean, it really is like a social thing, and um, I've always struggled with trying to drink. Like, when I would go out, I could have, like, a couple, and then I would need to switch to water just because my tolerance is really low. As a woman, it's very um, different for women to go out and drink as far as men, not saying that men can't get roofied, just saying that... Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's real for us and a lot of the things that we have to look out for. Um, so being out of control of my body, I was always scared of, you know, finding some predator of some kind kind of finding me. So there were like alcoholics in our family. I definitely believe it was in our DNA, um, but I just never really grasped onto it. But seeing the alcohol commercials and, oh, look at us having fun. Don't forget, buzz driving is drunk driving, but hey, go out and get shit-faced and call a cab. It's fine. You know, yeah. now it's it's changing for the better, but like 90s, 2000s, I mean, that's all you saw was tobacco commercials, mesothelioma promos, and... Um, any, any type of like big named alcohol people, alcohol sponsors, all major football. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a part of society and it's sold to you like, Hey, it's okay to do this. But then you're like, Oh, 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 you've developed an addiction. Well, that's your fault. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're all partying over here. Why'd you have to push it too far? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's my problem with society is that Alcohol has become a mainstay, and it's killing people at a faster rate than anything, than a lot of other things, really. Um, but um, ended up getting into my addictive behavior again, and um, we go on, my, on our last appointment. I was in 82nd. And that last appointment was a cakewalk. We guarded Department of State. Nothing happened. Um, I had a lot of time on my hands when the a lot of time on your hands, uh, I don't hands do the devil's work. And so I, I sat with myself, and I hate sitting with myself, because that means everything around me in my brain is going a million miles an hour, and there's no break. I'm a 
fucking runaway, runaway freight, freight train. And so I started thinking, like, do I really love my wife? Am I in love with her or do I, do I just love the idea of her? I got to that point where I wasn't in love with her, but I loved her because she was my daughter's mom and nothing will ever be able to take that away from her. But then I started thinking, like, if I'm not in love with her, like, we're already fighting, right? I don't want my daughter to be raised in a home where the parents hate each other. I'd much rather have her grow up in two separate households where we can get along and there's two separate families that love her. I mean, double the Christmas, right? It's pretty dope. Um, and so I presented that idea to my daughter's mom. And from that moment forward, I became public enemy number one to everyone. Literally, my dad, my mom, uh, they stepped back in my life. Um, my grandparents, I had nobody, literally nobody. Um, the moment that I said, hey, look, I'm in, I, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. And I don't want this. I don't want to raise our daughter and, and a lie. I think that that's more beneficial. I became public enemy number one. So, I mean, that's really something that should be highlighted more because there is, like, if a woman leaves a man, right, for whatever reason she does, it's like, oh, girl, what'd he do? What's going on? Da, 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 da. But when a guy actually understands the negative patterns that are coming out, whether the woman, you know, kind of wants to believe the facade that they've built up, which obviously, like, there's, again, a thing in society where you took those vows. That's what you promised. You must, you made this bed, you must lay in it. So as a man, seeing that truth and delivering that truth takes a massive amount of courage. But a lot of the stories that I've heard of where the guy's like, I'm leaving because, like, let's be honest, I don't want to give my daughter daddy issues. My daughter deserves to see true love and respect and all of that. But I, I do know from, you know, just examples popping up in my mind that the guy does become public enemy and it's a stigma where it's like a man doesn't leave his family and you're abandoning them and you're like, you're going to continue to give them more issues, so to speak. And yeah, I just think it's supremely powerful that you, you took the courage to do that because so many people stay, end up giving the kid 10 times more issues than what they would have if you had went away. When the kid gets older, they're either going to be like, why are you guys even together? Like, we clearly can tell that you don't want to be together. Like, if I spend time with my dad by myself and by my mom by themselves, they're super awesome. As soon as you put them in a room together, the energy is thick with obligation and resentment, you know? And kids pick up on energy, right? So, I mean, cheers to you, dude, for making that decision because I know... I knew way too many good men that fall for the bull crap and the stigmas of society that they have to stay because they actually chose this person to have kids with, but maybe they didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel where, like, that soul contract's over, bud. You need some courage in this situation. You need some clarity. So thank you so much for saying that. I hope the right voice hears that. Thank you. Um, And so I got back to Fort Bragg after that deployment. And I had nobody to come back to. I mean, I had my daughter. Uh, they hadn't moved yet, but I wasn't allowed to stay at home. Um, I, I ended up moving into the barracks. We had one car to the family, so we alternated days. But, like, the first day I didn't drink, right? I was like, I'm not going to drink. But that second day, I got obliterated. Something happened, I can't remember. And I went 
to the store and I bought a handle or a, I bought a fifth of Jameson, a 30 rack, and I sat and drank that in my room by myself, hoping I would die, but not wanting to die, but like, I just hope I don't wake up. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be upset if I didn't wake up, uh, but unfortunately I did. Well, fortunately I did. Not, at the time I was saying unfortunately. I totally get that. Um, fortunately, unfortunately. Um, so I ended up um, meeting a woman shortly afterwards, um, and she, you know, we were, I was separated from my wife at the time, and uh, I met this woman, and she kind of fed me all the bullshit that I needed to hear. Like, you're a good man. Yeah, fuck her. She did everything. Not like, hey, man, you got some work to do. Because you're a fucking wreck. She, everything that I needed to hear, she fed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, December, I can't remember what day it was, but uh, I ended up having to pack up my daughter and her mom and drive them to Georgia. And that was the worst. Um, the worst part of it was when I delivered all their stuff and was going to leave. My daughter was two. She's standing at the doorway of her grandma's house looking out at me and saying, Dad, don't go. And that, like, uh, took a knife and stabbed it, a hole in my chest that I, I don't, I, and to this day I can't feel. Like, like I wish that I could fill it with something, but it, 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 it did something. That day did something to me and it changed me for the rest of my life. Because I look at these patterns, right? I look at these patterns of of trauma and and my my grandparents did the same thing to my dad and my uncle my dad did the same thing to me and now i'm doing it to my kid and it it, it ultimately fucked me up and so I, dro- I i drove back home eight hours cried every minute eight hours um and um that woman the enabler was at my house when i got home and she said here just drink you'll be all right so I, I started drinking more and more and more because um, I wasn't happy I, I wasn't she couldn't make me happy I wasn't happy around any anything uh, I was just and, and I was existing that's what it was and um, April of the following year so it, it was 2015 April of 2015 she looks at me and she says uh, if you don't quit drinking I'm leaving there's that ugly ass ultimatum again right and I was like fuck it all right, but once again, I'm, I'm sober for somebody else. I'm not sober for me. And so um, I get sober. I end up getting divorced. And, and like, I got divorced September 15, 2015. I got remarried September 15, 2015. Talk about was, a repeating cycle. Yes, yes, yes. And... I, I could not stand the thought of being alone, and I couldn't stand the thought of not having somebody. And so when that opportunity presented itself, I jumped on it. Um, I stayed sober um, from 2015 to, and then in 2016, uh, I went on some training rotations. I went to Germany, I went to England, I went to Louisiana, and all those times I relapsed. Uh, because there was nobody there to hold me accountable, right? And I could lie, and I could be like, no, I didn't drink at all, nothing. No, you didn't see it happen. She's like, I'm looking at bank statements, dude. 
I'm like, ah, it wasn't me. Like, just lying through my fucking teeth, right? Uh, oh, well, she knows what's happening. And um, that was a toxic shit. But, like, on top of that, like, our relationship was completely toxic. There was red flags all over the place. Like, literally, if we were in a football field, like, that motherfucker would have been lying with red flags. Because that's how toxic the both of us were for our, for each other, right? Um, she was narcissistic. I was a fucking liar. Like, just everything. Definitely everything. trauma bonds feeding off of oh, each other, for sure. Oh, oh, yeah. And she had her own shit that she was dealing with. Like, the loss of a kid. She was coming off of a divorce. Like, <laughs> we just hated each other and said that we loved each other. Mm-hmm. Because that's what you're supposed to do, right? Well, the undertow for a lot of people that I talk to really is like, I don't want to be alone. So it's kind of like, I might not have an ace in a place, but hey, at least there's a there's a body bag next to me, right? Which yeah. truly does a disservice to everybody. But in especially trauma bonds, I spiritually I call them karmic relationships. They're the worst lessons you can learn, but you're needed. Um there's a lot of justification in hurting the other person because hurt people hurt people. And when you have yeah. two hurt people that are pretending like they're not hurt people, shit gets weird. You do stuff that truly your authentic self, your true healed self wouldn't do, right? There's, yeah. there's a lot of moments I know that you're telling us where you're, I love that you're so able to talk about your villain, right? And you're like, I've, I've studied this enough. I take responsibility for this, and I know that I don't want to act this way anymore. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so um, I end up going on a training rotation in Louisiana, and I get back, and they're like, "Hey, by the way, you just got orders to be promoted to staff sergeant." I was like, "I never went to a board. How the fuck is this happening?" The army said, "Well, you've got you've got the paperwork. You've got." You know, you're you're being rated amongst the best in your in your platoon and in your your battery. Like, there's no reason that they're not sending you to the board. So they got, I got automatically promoted, and the the, the toxicity showed in like I, I I prided myself in being a great leader where um, I treated my men with with respect and dignity. I didn't I didn't scream and yell at them. Um, I would much rather talk to them as a human being because that's what. Um, that's how I want to be treated, right? I want to be treated like a human being. And I didn't get that dignity from other leaders. So I want to give that dignity to my to the guys that served for me or with me. And so, but the toxicity showed through in my in my um, in my speech, right? So they're like, "Give a speech, give a speech." You know, who do you want to thank? So fucking no one, not a goddamn one of you. And my first time looked at me. And my 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 platoon sergeant looked at me, and I was like, I don't want to I don't want to thank anybody. I was like, because none of you guys got me here. You guys didn't send me the promotion board. They promised. I said, and I literally said this in a speech. I was like, I was like, you guys send me on every training rotation for the past year and a half, and and, and tell me that that all these things take precedence over my child support case. I was like, I miss child support and visitation, so therefore I'm paying the max amount of child support because you motherfuckers made me miss it. And I said, I said, not to mention, not to mention you didn't want to speak to the goddamn board after you promised me multiple times. I said, so now the Army sees that I'm doing work and you're not. So fuck all of you. Literally said that. I said, fuck all of you. Kiss my ass. I mean, I guess the truth is the truth at the time, right? Yeah, but I could have been more. 
I mean, obviously, there's a lot of anger, and you're right. The toxicity oh, yeah. definitely showed through the speech, but wow. Yeah. To be on, to be a fly on the wall and see their faces at the time. Yeah, and 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 the I guess I guess the the crowning achievement of that moment was I had a leader, uh, my platoon sergeant. Uh, I served under him multiple times in my career, and um, when I had first gotten to Fort Bragg and on on that deployment in 2012, after we got back, he told me, uh, "You'll never be an NCO under me." He's like, "You'll never serve as a non-commissioned officer underneath me." And he was the one that had to pin me, staff sergeant. And and the gratification I got out of that, I was saying, you know, fuck you. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it meant to me. But you, know, you don't own me. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, kiss my ass, homie, because I did this without you. Um, but I ended up when when I got promoted, my list opened up to where I could go, and like it was everywhere except for Fort Lewis, which is where my daughter was mom got remarried and she remarried an officer and they moved out to Fort Lewis which by the way I'm going to say this here and now um, that man is the best man that I could ever think to be a stepfather to my daughter Um, I appreciate everything that he has done for my my daughter and he's the best human being that I can think to be my daughter's stepfather and that's that's rare to say it's rare to hear Proper co-parenting is definitely um, new life skills that are coming into play, for sure. So, especially like man-to-man, you know, somebody coming in and parenting their daughter or their son, you know, whatever gender you have. It's it's a really tough thing to take to your ego, right? The good one and the bad one. I mean, it's hard because it makes you it makes you feel less as a parent, especially when you go into those situations where you stepped away because you knew that you weren't the one for her mother. And in knowing that you were going to do that, that there was going to be another man that came in and would technically have to play the father role in that household. And I think that's another reason that a lot of people choose to stay, quote unquote, for the kids, is because they couldn't bear the thought of somebody else coming in and playing such a um, valid role in their kid's life they could it could be someone that they hate and have no control over that's horrible and bad or on the other hand they're supremely great and they make them feel like they're um not as good so yeah that's amazing you're bringing so many good parenting points up this is awesome i learned a lot yeah um so uh in that time when my list opened up i said i handed my list to my my then wife and I said, where do you want to go? Like, there's a list. You get Italy, Hawaii, wherever. She said, let's go to Alaska. And I was like, fuck, all right. <laughs> she picked Alaska, Alaska over Hawaii and Italy? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, Interesting. So we get, yeah, we get up to up here to Alaska, and I'm like, fresh start, nobody knows me. Lo and behold, there's people that know me here. I'm like, fuck, I can't get, I can't get away from this shit. Well, the airborne community, if you know a lot about the airborne very small like there's a lot of us but there's a it it makes a, it comprises of 0.01 percent of the army we have a huge air force base here in wichita mm. it's mcconnell air force base mm. and then we're also the um head of airplane manufacturing so we're basically like we're the airplane capital of the world like harrison nice. ford flies his plane in here 
like every six months to get his plane maintained here. Uh, Christy Alley is originally from here. Um, she lives out in L.A. now. Like, there's, there's like, a couple big names that come in. And I found out that we are um, on one of the top lists for people to come get, like, secret plastic surgery. Weird. Yes. Okay. Weird. <laughs> yes. Besides a lot of indigenous culture and amazing arts communities and music, we have airplanes plastic and plastic surgery for you folks. That's awesome. Stay tuned. <laughs> More to come. More to come. Um, uh, so she said Alaska. I'm like, fuck. Okay, let's go to Alaska. So uh, we drive in January from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, all the way up to Alaska. The longest 11 days of my life. Um, it wasn't bad. I enjoyed it. But it was just the longest 11 days of my life. Um, we get up here. My first day up here was negative 25. Um, it was so cold I didn't realize how fucking cold it was. And it was crazy. Um, so um, life up here began. People knew me up here. Um, I was working for a unit. You're slated for a deployment, another one. And um, before you go on any deployment, they say, hey, like, you got to get this memory test done and this reactionary test done. Once you get that done, you'll be cleared. You'll be good to go. Well, I took it, failed miserably. And so the nurse that was administering the test looks at my scores, and she's like, oh, my God. I was like, what? She's like, we need to get you to a doctor right now. Like, right now, like, there's no waiting. I was like, uh, okay, like, I'm scared. What the fuck? Am I going to die? And so we go to this 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 uh, primary care manager, and uh, she's in the TBI clinic, and she's like, hey, your test scores. Like, tell me some symptoms of traumatic brain injury. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And she starts rattling off these symptoms. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost every single one of them, I, I have traumatic brain injury and I was like what the fuck is that and she's like how many concussions have you had I was like, how much time do you have and so she showed a lot of interest in me like there's something wrong and you got to get it fixed I'm like oh, oh whoa but then when she, when she was rattling off all these symptoms everything started to make sense everything all these things were starting to click for me I was having problems formulating sentences. I was stumbling over my words. I was blacking out. I was passing out, literally standing there and just boom, hit the floor. Um, my emotions were an emotional roller coaster. I had a sensitivity to light. I had random fits of nausea, like all this crazy stuff. And she was like, okay, we've got to get you treated. You know? And I said, okay, well, uh, work is going to want to know what's going on. So, like, I ended up going back to work and telling my, my platoon sergeant and my first sergeant, like, hey, this is what's going on. And I was expecting them to be like, well, suck it up, buttercup. You have a deployment. You have you have to go to Fort Polk, Louisiana. Like, suck it up. But my first sergeant was like, hey, man, how many deployments have you had? I was like, uh, And he's like, how many jumps have you had? 25. He's like, okay. He's like, get yourself taken care of. What? Unheard of. Unheard of. And, and I was like, Okay, and he's like, we're going to put you in a training room. All you got to do is just show up in the mornings, go to your appointments in the afternoon or, or, or during the day, and you'll be fine. You know, we'll keep accountability of everything else. 
Okay. So I go on this deployment, or sorry, I, I start doing this, this pipeline of treatment, and I'm doing occupational therapy, so it's helping me with my hand-eye coordination. I'm doing speech therapy, uh, and then they introduced this uh, thing called music therapy, and I was like, am I going to sit in my fucking room and like talk about my feelings and listen to music? Yeah, that's what I thought it was, dude. I thought they are going to have a big-ass statue of Buddha and shit. But as soon as you say music ther- therapy, I'm like, I'm right there. You understand what it is. Yes. I didn't know what it was. So I was like, why not? Like, let's figure this out. And I get in the room for a session. My music therapist is like, grab a ukulele. And I'm like, I don't know how to play. And she's like, I'm going to teach you. Okay. So I grab a ukulele, start my ukulele, and I get to the point where we've done probably two months of sessions. And she was like, okay, you graduated from the ukulele program. What do you want to learn? You're giving me the option to choose what I learned. She's like, yeah. I was like, okay, fucking guitar. So I pick up guitar and we start learning guitar. Progressively over time, I play drums now. Mm-hmm. I've seen that. That was the first thing I seen when I jumped on. I'm very attentive. Yeah, I you have a. John. You got John Lennon over there. I see that. Yeah, I got John. There's actually a piano behind me. Oh, nice. I have so many instruments. <laughs> I love so them I, so much. Actually, you, you you're not able to see, but I got a guitar back here. Um. Anyways, um. So in that time, I started doing counseling as well. And I'm starting to address some of the problems that are that are going on in my life, and this is 2017, and then uh, 2018 rolls around, like the beginning of the year, January. And so my daughter was in town. Uh, we flew my daughter up here, and um, started noticing some things with my ex-wife, or my, my wife at the time. I, and I said I dropped the bomb, ex-wife. Anyways, I. I I started noticing some things with my my wife. She wasn't paying attention to my daughter. Um, When she was in town, my daughter wanted to cuddle with her. She wouldn't do it. Um, And um, I had a lot of concerns, right? And so I was like, hey, like, I noticed that this is happening and that's happening. And I'm like really peaceful, really calm. She blows up on me. And I'm like, where is this coming from, dude? Right, and the toxic shit is coming back around. And uh, so I get kicked out of my house. She kicks me out of the house. Like, I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to argue with you. All right, fine, I'm leaving. So I left and came back a few days later. And um, I approached it again in the same manner. Like, I wasn't screaming, yelling. I wasn't accusatory. I used I statements, not you statements. Same thing. Boom. This week, this time I was gone for two weeks. At the end of the two weeks, I come back to the house to pick out more clothes. And um, she's like, can you watch the kids? Because I, I need to get out, you know. I was like, man, fuck it, what not? And I'm thinking, expecting that she's going to be back at the end of the night and she doesn't come back till the morning. And I'm like, okay, what happened? That triggered, get the fuck out of my house. All right. This is the third time I'm being kicked out of my house. Like, there's clearly something wrong. She calls me. Tells me, I'm sorry, come back to the house. Literally later on that day. I get back to the house. She says, oh, do you want to open a relationship? I'm like, what? Where, where's it coming from? And then she's like, well, where do you think I was last night? I was That's how I found out she was cheating on me. And so I, at the time, I, I worried about her happiness. I didn't worry about mine. I said, sure, why not? Well, quickly after that, I was like, I don't want this. 
Like, I'm not happy. And it's not that I, I, I can't go out and meet somebody. I, I'm married to you. That's what I want. Like, and if that's not what you want, then you tell me. And she's like, no, 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 I want to be with you. So she wanted to be reap the financial benefits, but just not deal with me. And it got to a point where life became really fucking unmanageable because not only was I dealing with shit at work, I was dealing with my medical stuff. Now I got this. And I got really depressed. And Cinco de Mayo 2018, I relapsed again. And um, I went out and got really fucked up. And for that next month, I, I, I drank every day, all day. So like I was going to work, I'd come home, uh, I'd eat a little something, I wasn't eating very much. And start drinking till blackout and then wake up for work the next morning do it all over again and uh may or june 1st 2018 um i got to this point where i was like i don't want to live anymore like i i I don't fucking care about life i don't care about anything um i said you know i told my daughter or i or i sat there and i I thought to myself said my daughter's got a good stepfather and she doesn't need me. Um, you know, nobody really cares about me. I made 32 phone calls, 32 phone calls. Nobody answered. Not a single person answered. And in hindsight, I called the wrong people. I do you have 32 people. wrong contacts? <laughs> I called 32 people that I knew were in different time zones, would not pick up. And I didn't want to be saved. And that's what I try to point out to people. Right. When, when you get to that point, you don't want to be saved. There is nobody that can fucking save you except for yourself. And so I got drunk. Uh, we went out to this lake up here. Um, it's called, uh, fuck, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Anyways, we got out to this lake bed and we're having a bonfire and I'm not even focused on a social interaction. I'm sitting there behind my truck, just boom, 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 throwing bottles back. I killed about five bottles. And, and, and here's a kicker, like, I'm, I'm the UPO of the unit, so I'm the unit prevention leader. I, I, I know how much alcohol is supposed, like it takes to, to hit you and how fast it's going to hit you. So I drank enough to hit me really quick. I jumped in, the, in my car, and I drove so far away so that nobody would see me, and I put my, tra- my car on the tree at 70 miles an hour. Literally, boom, aimed it right at the tree, hit the motherfucker. Uh, when I came to the only time when I was still in my truck, the engine block was that far from me. It was right here. And I woke up in the hospital, and um, my ex-wife, or my wife was there. And um, she was like, you're so fucking stupid, why would you do this? Like, you don't tell somebody that has tried to kill themselves that they're fucking stupid. Not the first and, thing you should say when they actually lived either. Like, let's be yeah. a little grateful, no matter what right. the circumstances are. Right. And so, so I said, and I said, I, I tried to kill myself. And she was like, why would you do that? And I said, well, I'm not going to blame you, but you're a motivator. I said, I have all these other motivators. I'm not blaming you, but you are a motivator as to why that feel the way that I feel. She got up and walked away. And then, like, left. And my first sergeant came in. And he was like, why would you do this? And he tried to compare his life to mine, which didn't make it better. Uh, so I ended up getting out of the hospital, going home, and uh, one of my buddies um, came to my house. And he knocked on my door, and he said, you're not okay, and you're going to come and stay with me. 
and um, because of that man, um, I probably, he's probably one of the only reasons that I'm still alive today, because I don't know what I would have done. That's really powerful. Yeah. And so I got to his house, and my eye was all swollen shut because the, the airbag smacked me in the eye and scraped above my, my head or my, my eyebrow. And um, I sat there, and I was just, like, so shameful, so full of shame. Um, and, and I was like, I need some help, like, serious help that, that no counselor is going to be able to provide me right now. So I checked myself into um, our inpatient program up here on base. Um, and I stayed there for 11 days, and that 11 days we focused on CBT. Everything was great. I didn't have to worry about anybody around me. But in that time, the one thing that was on my mind was my, my wife. Like, I've got to get through to her that I love her and that I care and that this is why I made the decision that I made. And, and so I wrote it out. I wrote out a letter to her that I would read to her because I can write things out and articulate things better than I would be if I'm speaking it just straight from my brain. So I write out this letter. I call her and say, hey, can you come and just sit with me for like 20, 30 minutes, just a little bit of your time? And she was like, yeah, sure. So she showed up completely annoyed, and I sat there and I read this letter. And as I'm reading the letter, I'm looking up, and like, it's like I was talking to a wall. And so from that moment forward, I realized, like, there was nothing left. Like, I couldn't fight it anymore. I couldn't run from it. Like, there was nothing left in that relationship. So I get out of inpatient treatment. I start doing outpatient treatment. So for another 11 days, I'm doing this outpatient treatment. Everything is fine. I go back to work, um, and everything is working out there. Um, but I started growing like a set of balls that I never knew I had on myself, right? Like I could tell people to fuck off and it didn't, I didn't even care. Um, and then I filed for divorce. Um, so one of the things that happened at work was that my first aunt walks in and he's like, what's wrong with you, 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 and you? And everybody's listing off these things that are wrong with them, why they're there. And it comes to me and I said, you know, I've got TBI, I've got, um, you know, all these other things going on. And he's like, oh, so it's on your head. And I absolutely lost it. Like, I was so full of rage. And, I, I, and, and I'm a person, like, if, if you're working for me or with me, like, I'm going to defend you. And that was one of those times where, like, where, like, Rage Viking came out. And I was like, so you're telling me this guy, these two guys that broke a hip and a leg on a jump, that's all in their head, right? And I said, these two guys who have testicular cancer who had half their manhood taken from them, like, that's, that's all in their head, right? And this guy, this guy that that you know has this wrong with him that's in his head right i was like i was like fuck off dude get out of here i don't i was like if you got to communicate with me do it through email and he didn't he didn't open my door one more time ever and so i grew a real big resentment for him and i was sober in that time and like didn't drink and because i was like i can't drink because i'm on meds and like that that'll really fuck with me if i drink on meds right um meanwhile the meds i was taking prior to that i didn't care like i was taking lexapro and that made more suicidal, so like it didn't really matter. So I was on gabapentin, I'm not gabapentin, but I was on uh, Wellbutrin, and I was like supremely happy all the time. Like, like someone could have shot you, and you'd yes. been like, It's okay, it's just yeah. a flesh wound. Yeah, it is but a flesh wound, it is exactly. but a flesh wound, yes. Yeah, and, and that's what it did for me, and so I was like perpetually happy all the time. Meanwhile, people didn't know this, the absolute anarchy that was going on inside my brain and um so the army decided like i'm not useful anymore <laughs> the 
because I got this traumatic brain injury thing going on, and um, they're gonna medically separate me from the army, and that really fucked me up because I was like not only terrified because I didn't know anything in life, but also what am I gonna do? I don't have any skills outside of this. Like I have office skills, and that's cool. But what person is gonna hire a veteran with office skills? Nobody. Like let's be real here. I'm not formally trained. I'm informally trained. I call myself everything I know, and so. And I have the worst case of PTSD that you can yeah. imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that was at the time where stigma was real in the workplace. And so um, the Army ended up medically retiring me. And um, I go in after work or after I get my, my clearing paperwork, my DD-214, my, my retired ID. And I walk in to where I'm working. And uh, the first sergeant walks out and he's like, did you get your stuff? And in that moment, I could say everything I wanted to say to him. All I said was, fuck you, Joe. Like, his name, first name was Joe, and I was like, fuck you, Joe. And I held it up like this. And I was like, I was like, you can kiss my ass. And I turned around and walked out. And that was, that was my, that was my swan song, right? Like, I got to say everything to the, the, this toxic leader that uh, nobody else gets to say. And um, I walked out and I drove home. And that was that. In the time. Uh, right after my divorce, I met um, my now wife. So I got, I got divorced October third, twenty nineteen, um, and I met my my wife shortly after that. And I didn't rush it. So I thought, I was like, I'm taking this slow. I want to go on dates with her. I want to. Be able to drive to her house. I want her to be able to drive to mine. Like, let's make this mutual. Let's go slow. <laughs> Three months later, she just moved into my house. Like more cycles of insanity happening. And um, so I, I get out of the army, and and I'm moving into my own place. Meanwhile, the VA is not kicking in, so I don't have a way to pay for this house. I get I get evicted, and but shortly afterwards, like literally like hours after the eviction process happened, I was in this house that I live in now, which is on base, and um, it was something that was like really tumultuous to me, right? Like I didn't understand how I could do this for my country, and the VA is not helping me out, right? So I end up calling my center. Everything gets gets worked out in its own time, and. Um, I'm getting paid by the VA. Uh, but in the meantime, like, I'm trying to find employment because I don't feel like I have any purpose. And I get this this job at the airport, and I didn't have any skills for it. It was a customer service job. I had no skills for it. The only reason that they hired me, literally, was because I was funny. I made them laugh. And that made me feel like shit, right? Because, like, I'm the funny guy, but I don't know any skills. I don't have any skills. So I start working there, and I'm, I'm learning. But I got this beard going on, and I'm intimidating people got this still this rage built up I'm not drinking but I still got this rage built up that like is consuming so I'm saying I, I have I had really dark humor I would walk in an office in my manager's office and I was working in a section of all females and I walk in my manager's office she's a female and I'm like hey do you know the quickest man or quickest quickest way to a man's heart and she was like food I said no through his chest scared the shit out of people right mm-hmm and they and, and all the men in my and in my place of employment were terrified of me be, 
because that's how I presented myself, and I was okay with that. Well, your energy introduces you before you even open your mouth. That oh, yeah. was that was very profound the first time I heard it too, and I was just like, "Fuck you!" Uh-huh. You know, I had I definitely had that like very big energetic barrier, yeah. and I mean and, like, and, and, yeah. And then my boss came to me, and she's like, "You know, you're scaring all the other guys," and I was like. I'm the nicest person you'd ever meet. She's like, you're very angry. I was like, you're fucking angry. I'm not angry. (laughs) Right? But secretly I was. I just was not able to admit it. But channeling it through sarcasm is something that I can completely identify with. Yeah. And and so uh, July 4th, 2019, um, I fed myself the lie for the last time. And I I said, uh, I think I'm going to get a drink. I think I'm okay to drink because uh, I'm in an environment where it's not hostile. I'm, you know, I'm surrounded by a woman that I love, kids that enjoy me being around. Um, so I said, I'm going to have one drink. And my wife was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to have one drink. I had one drink. That led into three that night. The next night, it led into six. And all the while, like, I'm, I'm telling myself, I'm fine. I'm okay. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just enjoying my time. Well, it started where I was drinking on the weekends. And then it was like, I'm drinking eh, a few times during the weekday. To, I'm going and buying a fifth of fucking uh, of Crown Royal every night. So that I can keep on an even keel, right? Um, my wife and I, we argued like it was nobody's business in that time. like, And it had nothing to do with her. It had everything to do with me. She was a fucking saint, and I mean that. Like, she was a saint at that time. And, like, it was hard. It, it was really hard because I was like, I fucking, I, I despise her so much. Why is she trying to control me? But in reality, like, I was out of control, completely out of control, completely oblivious to everything around me. And December 7th uh, was that, that year, December 7th, 2019, was probably the worst night of my life, of my existence, outside of trying to kill myself. Um, so I go to work and I come home. It's a Friday night. And, um, nah, yeah, it was a Friday night. And um, I drive past the gas station. The gas station on base, all of them sell liquor. So I stop. I get two bottles of Crown that night. Because I'm like, I'm feeling it tonight. We're going to get fucked up tonight. We're going to have a good time. I drive home. I get. I don't even get out of my car. I uncork it, drink it, drink half the bottle, walk in the house. And we're playing Cards Against Humanity. Who doesn't love it, right? I love Cards Against Humanity, but it's more funny as a drinking game. So um, we're, you know, we're playing Cards Against Humanity. Part of the way through the night, my wife is like, okay, I think you're done drinking. And I was like, no, I'm not. Instantly, full of rage. And I wake up outside of my house with no shirt on. Two hours later. First, it's December. I should not be outside with no shirt on. It's cold as a motherfucker. And you're in Alaska, so that winter is like negative 20, negative 30 when you're talking Mm -hmm. about winter. Yep. And when I come to him, I'm like, I am so angry, but I don't know why. And I go inside, and my house is destroyed. There's holes in my wall. Um, A guitar that I had gotten as a gift from my mom was broken. Mm. All the Funko Pops that I had in my collection are on the floor, stomped on. And I look down the hallway, and my wife's on the floor. 
and I was like, I don't know why she's on the floor, but I'm going to grab the keys and leave. So I grabbed the keys and I left and I drove. Um, I drove down to uh, a spot called Mirror Lake and I slept in, I, I slept in at, at Mirror Lake. Meanwhile, I didn't have a wallet. I didn't have my phone. I had no way to communicate with anybody, but I know one person that lives not too far away. So I drove to his house and I was like, I think something bad happened last night and I don't know what. He's like, I would call your wife if I were you. And I was like, okay. So I call her and she's like, you hit me. And I was like, I don't remember. And she's like, you hit me. And my wife has never given me a reason to doubt her. I, I had never lied to her. She had never lied to me. So I was like, if that's what you're telling me that I did, then I, I need to fucking pay for this. Like, this is not okay. And so I went to a Walmart in town and uh, I called the police and I said, hey, um, my wife is telling me I hit her. I don't remember, um, but I'm here. You don't have to worry about me running. And then I called her and I said, hey, if you want to come pick the car up, it's going to be here. I've just called the police. I'm waiting to get arrested. And um, so my wife and her mom and her, her stepdad show up and the cops show up and my wife is like, I just want him to go get help. You can take him to the hospital. I don't care. He needs help. And her mom is like, no, he needs to go to jail for what he did. And so they handcuffed me, put me in the back of the car, drove me to the opposite of jail. And I sat in jail for 20 days. In that 20 days, like I was so angry at everyone. I was angry at my wife because, and I, and I blame my wife. Stop me drinking, but in reality, she couldn't. I mean, she right? tried, right? And then you're like, no, yeah. whatever. I said, yeah, I said, my roommate, I was like, my roommate, he could have quit, you know, stop me from drinking. He's he's taller than I am. He's bigger than I am. He, reality is he couldn't do it. Nobody could. And then I had this old indigenous man sit down, and he heard my shit for the last time. And he was like, they call me Viking in jail. He's like, Viking. Shut the fuck up. And I sat and I looked at him, and he was like, you've created all your problems in your life. Every one of your problems. And until you, you come to terms with that and you accept that, this is where you're going to be, man. And I was like, oh. Was that the song? I'm like, why is something playing right now? Nope. It's my phone. Oh. <laughs> no big deal. That's that's my ringtone. Someone's calling me and my phone's not on silent. My bad. Keep going. So when he said that, at first I was really like, fuck you, man. Who are you to tell me? Like, I didn't say that to him, but in my mind, like, I was trying to justify. I was like, fuck you. Who are you to tell me that I did all this to myself? And then I sat with it. Right. Like, and literally, it took me probably 20, 30 minutes later, and I was like, he's right. Like, I've done all this shit to myself, and I've done this to other people. And, like, I'm here because of me. Like, I'm not here because I because somebody said that I did something. I did it. I'm here because I fucking did it. And, and this is where I deserve to be. And it's crazy how the universe works out, right? So the day that I accepted it, and was the day that my bail was posted, 
was the day that electronic monitoring came to put my ankle bracelets on was the day I was released from jail and the day that I started my recovery. That's my sobriety date. I, December 27, 2019 is the day that I accepted everything in my life and that's the day that I choose to say that I was sober because sobriety isn't just you know abstinence from a substance, it's also the mind frame that you're in. And so that was the day that I entered into therapeutic courts, which I don't know if you know what that is, but it is um, it is a lingual system that is meant to treat people with substance abuse disorders and mental health disorders to recover from what they're going through. Meanwhile, keeping them accountable in this program. So um, I entered into veterans court up here in Anchorage, and my, my program was nine months, and every bit of that nine months was super challenging. Um, I had requirements like I had to go to AA every, like I had to go only three times a week, but I ended up going every day because it was a benefit for me. I didn't care about appeasing the program. I needed something for myself. I needed to do this for me, not for anybody else. And that was my mindset that I had. I had to do it for me. I was in counseling at least once a week, um, and I didn't do it to appease the courts. Um, I had marriage counseling with my wife uh, where we addressed our problems. and I did that for, for me because I needed to understand, one, what I did to my wife and how I can work on bettering my, my relationship with my wife, but also how to stop this cycle of fucking madness that I put myself in. Um, and um, I had UAs every day. And like go, coming home, like, like actually like being integrated back into my home didn't happen for like eight months. Right, so it was like baby steps. Like the first three months, I wasn't able to contact my wife. Then the next month or so, I was able to talk to my wife on the phone. And then after that, I was able to visit her in public. And then after that, I was able to come home for overnight stays. And then it was integrated back in the home. So it wasn't like I was jumping back in the home and like I was doing my recovery here. Like I was, I was removed from my home, and I'm okay with that because that was the best benefit for both of us. Meanwhile, my wife showed up to every one of my hearings. I had, I had court every Monday. She showed up to every single one of them to make sure, like, to be a support to me and to make sure that I was, you know, I was on a straight and narrow. And, and I graduated October 2020, and that program saved my life. Uh, I did this other program. It's called MRT, and it's within the, the same program, like vet court, you have to do MRT, and it's called more reconation therapy. And it's, and the word reconation is, it, Conation is, is to connect, right? Like you're connecting um, something, and reconnection is to bring that connection, to reconnect. And so it's a reconnection of yourself, of your morals and your values. And so step one for any program is super hard, right? Step one is that is that admitting phase, right? So in AA, NA, step one is admitting that you're powerless over alcohol or over, over addiction or over your drug of choice. Step one was admitting you know, an MRT was admitting my bag of secrets, that I had secrets that I had not told anybody and admitting to some of those. And that was so hard because I admitted to cheating on my wife. I admitted, admitted to being a piece of shit. I admitted to, to the fact that I couldn't control my substance of choice. All of that. And it fucked me up, dude. Like, I got to that point where I called one of my mentors, and I said, dude, I don't feel good about this. He's like, you're not supposed to. He's like, you're supposed to feel like shit. And he's like, but that's the only way to get past it. 
So from step one on, I learned to to be truthful, be honest, um, to not try and slide around the program or slink my way around the program. That the only way to do the program was to do it the right way and, and, and put your nose to the grindstone and get it done. Upon graduation, um, I had completed vet court the fastest out of any participant in the history of vet court. I had I had no infractions on my name. Um, I had the most people at my graduation that spoke on my behalf that said, you are a good fucking guy. I mean, even my mother-in-law that seen me get arrested showed up and she said, I realized that what you did was a mistake, that it wasn't, that's not who you are. And so that felt really good, but I didn't know what I was doing after that court. I graduated and I was like, okay, I've got these recovery skills. What do I do with it? And um, so... Um, I called my MRT facilitator, and he's like, hey, man, there's this thing that's called peer support. Um, I have a contact for for the state trainer. You should go do it. And I was like, what? Uh, I mean, that's cool. What is peer support? He's like, I don't know. But just go figure it out. Like, oh, fuck, man, okay. Here's your seed. Go plant it. Yeah, yeah. Zero to no information whatsoever. Just blind faith. All right, cool. So uh, I call this peer trainer, and she's like, yeah. Class starts this week. Okay, over Zoom. Yeah, so we I do I, I do this thing over Zoom. It's a month long, where I'm learning how to be a peer, what peer support specialists are, and I know that you know it, but for everybody that may not know it, peer support specialists are people that have uh, been through addiction uh, or mental health disorders and come on the other side, or family members, or friends, or anybody that supports people that are in addiction um, to use their to help the next person along the way. And, and so I got, I, I went through the course and then I ended up getting my certificate and I was like, life change. And, and, and what really changed my life, and it wasn't the curriculum. Curriculum is great, like, I love it. it. It taught me everything that I know now. But what changed my life was the last two weeks we had to share our story. I had never shared my story. And when she said, you know, when my instructor said, hey, going to share your story it terrified me right because i'm telling i'm telling a room full of a, a, a room full of people that i don't know strangers my story and they're going to hold me accountable to my story right just like i'm doing here and so i wrote bullet points out and she was like okay who's going to share first and it's i with every bit of terror and, and fear that i had in my body i was like i'm going and she was like Oh, okay. So I shared my story first, and it, at the end of it, it was like I was handed a key to a door that I didn't know existed. And everything unlocked. Everything that, that didn't make sense seemed to make sense in that moment. And so after I did that, I some of my vet card participants are like, hey, we need a process group for our alumni program for veterans. Would you like to start up this group? So I started up a process group for our veterans uh, up here in Alaska that, that are in therapeutic courts. I've been doing it for almost two years. Um, actually, this month will mark two years that we've been doing it. And I facilitate every group Monday and Saturday. And that is a part of my, not, it's not my recovery, but it's part of my recovery, right? Um, and so um, in that time of having my peer support certificate and sitting with it, and like, I don't know with it I, I started working for a clinic and that clinic fell under because they didn't know how to work around some of the 
with certain things, and that's okay. Um, but then I got the gift from my wife of being a stay-at-home dad. And for men, that's hard, right? Because the, the gender roles, the gender roles, men will go, go to work and women will stay home. Well, my wife is like, you've worked long enough and you've done enough, not just for the country, but for us, like, stay at home. Just take care of the house. I'll, I'll pay, you know, I'll, I'll work. So she works, I stay at home, I take care of the kids, make sure they get to and from school, make sure they're taken care of, um, keep the house up to date. Anything my wife needs, I'm at her beck and call. No, she's like, hey, I need this from the store. Okay, boom, I'm on it. Um, but in that time, I was so terrified to to submit this packet of paperwork that says um, you're going to be certified by the state to treat people. Um, I was so terrified to turn that in because I was like, the board is going to see me for how I see myself and that as I see myself as this piece of shit. Because that's all that I've felt my whole life is I'm a piece of shit. And I, I handed it in. And I got a letter and a certificate back in the mail that says you're certified in the state of Alaska to be a peer support specialist. And that was one of the happiest days of my life. Yeah. And in that time, I became a MRT facilitator. So I am MRT certified because that course saved my life. That, that course changed me dramatically. And I started learning that, like, my recovery changes, right? So, like, um, I love AA. It helped me out for a season, and I don't go to AA as much as I normally do. I go when I need it, right? When I have days or weeks where I'm like, oh, fuck, it's bad. But my my recovery now looks like, and that, this is why I say I'm in long-term recovery, my, my program looks like, to me, is I, I put something in my day every day that's going to benefit me, right? And not just self-care, but something that's going to benefit me. So Monday, I do counseling. Tuesday, I have music therapy. Wednesday, I have my groups. Thursday, I have massage therapy for, for my back. And then Friday is my open day where, hey, um, something could fill in. You know, I normally might have a business meeting for this national alumni program we're doing, or I might have podcast editing that, that I, I, I jump on other people's podcasts and share my story. Saturday, I have my, I have my other alumni groups, and then so, Sunday's my off day, and I do it all over again. But I also do meditation. Uh, I do a lot of meditation because, God damn it, I like, like I need it, and the world needs it. Yes, right. going from I, I, medicated to meditated. Yeah. Yes. So, so, so I don't just do guided guided meditation or body scans, but I also do like AMR, ASMR meditation because it helps me to connect with myself. Um, and, and so that's really been helping. And then um, like a year ago, um, I got on TikTok. And, and this is where like everything kind of started catapulting for me. Um, I absolutely despise TikTok. Like, I don't know if you've interacted with TikTok at all. I'm just starting. I have roughly 300 followers, and I'm still, like, I know that, I know it's benefits, and that's what I really try to focus on when I'm on there. I know that there's a bunch of crap on there, but I want to be one of the good pages that you can go to for consolidated resources. So... So when I first heard of TikTok, I seen all the trends that were happening, and I was like, this is the dumbing of society. Absolutely the dumbing Purposefully of society. Purposefully dumbing down of the society. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and my kids were doing trends, and I was like, this is stupid. Uh, but I, I game. I, gaming is one of my coping mechanisms, right? So like I, I play Minecraft. It's fun. Uh, it keeps my brain a little bit uh, 
engaged in some things. And um, so my wife is, will listen to videos behind me while I'm gaming, and I, I, I tend to listen in. And one of them, this lady was talking about how she lost her husband to addiction, and you could hear the pain and the suffering in her voice. And I was like, well, if there's this much pain on, on TikTok, my, I might be able to do some good. And so I got on and I, st- I introduced myself, started sharing my story, sharing what I know about addiction and about mental health disorders, like breaking the stigma of like, of like, this is what addiction looks like. This is what like cookie cutter shit. Like this is what mental health disorders look like. No, because we look different, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm a normal person. I look like a normal person. You'd never be able to pick me out of a lineup with somebody that has addiction and mental health disorders, but I do. And, and so I started breaking that mold. And what really did it for me was I was having a shit day and it was actually like a year to, to I think a year today or maybe a year within this, these, these next few days. But I posted this video, I was super vulnerable and I was really vulnerable and I was in my feelings. And I said, look, I just need somebody to sit with me for a minute. Don't talk, don't say nothing. I just need you to be present, right? Because if we're present, we're not talking and we're just there, miracles work in our life. And so I just asked for that. And that, that video, that, that TikTok's got 1.3 million views. I don't care about the numbers, but it, the, the amount of people that it reached and the amount of pain that was unloaded on that post, there's like 500,000 comments on that post of people unloading their pain, unloading their grief and their sorrow, and there's so many stitches and duets of people unloading what happened to them and, and, and what, what has, is happening in their life and how they're dealing with it spoke volumes to me right so like i continue to do it i continue to come back and i continue to do that stuff i mean i have some funny stuff on mine but i really promote my vulnerability because like if i'm not vulnerable and i'm and, and i can't talk about like why i'm feeling the way that i feel or what i'm feeling then i'm just, i'm not recovering at all mm-hmm. i'm just stagnant so like recently i had a day where like i don't know what happened I just felt like crying all day. Like I was sitting in my car and every little thing was like, cry, cry, cry. Like I listened to, to metal and, and, and all different kinds of stuff. And I was listening to nothing more. And there was a song um, that really spoke to me and hit me in the heart. And I was like, I just need to fucking cry. And I, I put that out there in the universe and it, it really, it opened up. People are like, yeah, you know, bah, 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 bah. I'm feeling the same way. This song means, world to me and then one of my friends made a, a video about how about what his depression looks like and I made a three-part video of what my depression looks like to me because I still suffer from depression not every day is perfect for me not every day is sunshine and rainbows not every day is is I'm able to vocalize my recovery some days just suck some days are just I don't want to be awake not that I don't want to be alive I just don't want to be awake but I have responsibilities. I have my kids. I have people that I have made commitments to. I have a commitment to myself, right? Now my commitment to myself is being the best version of me that I can be, even if that best version of me that I can be is only 40% something. And so um, I keep coming back. I keep being vulnerable. I keep doing the things that have worked for me, even if I don't want to do them. Even if I'm like, man, today I don't feel like meditating because it's going to put me to sleep well. If I'm meditating and it puts me to sleep, I'm doing some work, right? And so, you know, I keep doing that and I keep coming back. And I, I actually, in a crazy twist and turn of events from the, the podcast page that I met you on, there's a guy that's offering 20 grand to, for, 
in a contest to share your story, and I'm entering into a contest. I hope you win. I, you know, for me, it's not about the money. I just want my, I, I want people to know that, like, we're not alone. Like, mm-hmm. even if you're not, even if you don't struggle with mental health disorders or addiction, life still happens, right? There, we will have days or months where it's harder on us than it was the day before. And, and I want people to know that they're not alone in their suffering and their struggles, that there's millions of us out here that feel the way that, he, that they do. And, and just because they're dealing with it in their own way doesn't mean that there is not help out there for them. And there's millions of people that don't realize how traumatized they really are. There's a lot of emotionally unavailable people yeah. around for sure. I know, I mean, especially with everything that happened in 2020, there was really time for a lot of people to reflect whether they realized that was happening to them or not, which I think is a lot of the reasons why collectively you know, people are waking up to themselves and things in the world and, oh, hey, you know, that actually did affect me. That did hurt my feelings. Hey, that actually happened. Whoa, you know, the day that I don't want to get out of bed, you know, I'm purging and releasing a lot of things that, you know, maybe don't make sense right now, but, you know, through plenty, plenty therapeutic ways to heal yourself. Journaling is a really big one for me. I do, I do a lot of that before and after meditation, um, especially when, um, like I'm angry and I don't understand why I'm angry. Like nothing happened in my day to technically trigger me. You know, there's plenty of triggers that you can go through, which I always say, thank your triggers for they show you where you aren't healed. Most people are like, oh, I have anxiety, work around me, you know, and I'm like, you're not healing and I'm not going to, you know, treat you like you live in a bubble. Um, But I have, like, I don't, I don't have a label, right? I don't have, like, I was an addict. I had a mental health disorder. I've been sober so long. Like, I don't, it's never been about the label for me. It's about understanding that um, what happened to me wasn't my fault, but the healing is my responsibility. So there are times where I have to, you know, really go back and kind of soundboard it with somebody. And I'm like, okay, I really need to pull this apart. Um, I feel like since that this is the first time I'm talking about this, like it does sound like I'm the victim in the situation. I'm like, but there's a lot of situations that I still go through that um, I really am too close to the forest to see the trees on the situation. And I have found a group of people that I've been able to confide those in, but also with the ever-evolving, you know, way of life, like people come in your life and people leave. And I've had my fair share of people where I've confided the depths of my soul in them, thinking that they were a safe space for me. And in turn, um, they were those people that kind of just wanted to use that shadow side against you to almost tell you like, oh, no this is actually you, you know, you're, you're pretending to be good, so to speak. Um, but I've had, I've had a lot, a lot of crazy experiences with just like really putting myself out there and like being denied like that. And then it, it goes back to that like devil in your head, that mer- that mean person in the mirror. It's like, I told you so, you know, like I, t- you are, you are crazy, you know, like, you go back through all of that stuff, but stories like yours, especially the vulnerability, um, is really powerful, but it also shows, um, 
a common theme in a lot of people that I've talked about um, where we're all lonely in some capacity. Um, we, we, are, we all struggle with our, our own things, especially with going through all the things that we've experienced in our lives. And um, I mean, you have your reasons for why you do your show and your TikTok and I have my reasons for I, I do mine. And they're, they're kind of the same, you know? We understand that we have to be vulnerable. We have to, here's the parts where I was the hero. Here's the parts where I was the villain. Believe them both because I am both. And I'm okay with walking in that duality. I'm okay with learning from direct experience and awareness. But I can actually go pull myself out of my pit now. I don't sit in a pit and go, who's coming to save me? Where's my white horse? Where's my pill? Where's my this? Like, do I need to journal today? Do I need to meditate today? Do I need to go to AA today? Do I need to call my friend Sean? You know, like, there, there's so much power and not outsourcing yourself and there's so much power in realizing hey I, I need someone to talk to I need a safe space to go to right now I'm just I recognize in myself I'm a little weak today and I'm I need the human connection and that's yeah. the part of TikTok that I actually do like because yeah. I've learned a ton and I've connected a ton on TikTok you know you, you talked about a few talk about the anger portion and anger management is one of the things I went through and, and and I always thought that I was just this naturally angry person right that that I'm just I, I used to say this uh, the the part in Avengers at the end of Avengers the first one where they're like but Bruce how can you turn into the Hulk you have to get angry and he's like the secret is I'm always angry I felt like that. Like, I was like, I'm always fucking angry. I'm always the Incredible Hulk. So I'm just always angry. But the reality is, is I'm not always angry. But anger was my go-to. Like, I got in an adrenaline rush off of being angry. And, um, you know, if I was sad, I got angry. If I got mad, I was angry. If, if I was depressed, I was angry. And, and I know where I learned it from. I learned it from the Army. Because in the Army, they tell you, Get angry, no matter what you do. You go on a run, get angry. You need that fight or flight angry. to go kill your enemy. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So I, I didn't know how to, to turn that off and, and, and to just hit that button and say, okay, no more. Um, and so I learned to really sit with my feelings and my emotions and be like, okay, how do I feel? Like, how do I feel and what's the emotion behind it? Because if I'm able to identify how I feel, like not anger, because anger, anger is that, that that bit of the iceberg that you see. What do I really feel, and what are what are what's the emotion attached to it, and and, and what is the triggering event that led me there? And, and so, I am able to identify that now. I I'm, it doesn't all, like I'm not always perfect, right? I don't I'm not always able to pinpoint that and be like, yeah, that you know I'm angry. Why do I feel angry? Where's the real feeling? What's the real emotion? But more times than not, I am able to do that. Um, and you also, oh, I can't remember the second thing because I was so fixated on that anger portion. <laughs> it's okay. I thought that was very valid what you said about the anger. It's super true. Um, but but also, um, yeah, I don't remember. I, I, I blinked on the second thing because you said something. I was like, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. And I don't have my, my notebook in front of me. But, yeah, um, you know, when we, when we deal with, with anger, 
a lot of times it's not the actual emotion. That is what we go to, right? That, that's our, our, our go-to. That's like our quick stop. It's like our energy drink when we wake up in the morning. Let's get, let's get it going. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, um, I've learned that my, my anger is my biggest enemy, um, period. And my brain is, is, is close to that because my brain can be my biggest asset but my, my worst enemy. And when I start listening to what my brain is telling me, I, everything else goes away. Oh, I remember the second thing. Okay. Um, anyways, the second thing was you're talking about the pandemic and, and, and you know, how, you know, a lot of people are coming to terms with it. The pandemic did a lot for recovery, the recovery community. I've seen people come in and say, you know, in, in the rooms and say, I drink entirely too much. And I've noticed that I haven't gotten any, any, any legal trouble, but I've lost everything. Or I've seen people relapse and then come back and say, I relapsed and I had X amount of years sober and now I'm starting back at square one. For me, I found comfort in being alone. I found comfort in not not having to situate myself around people. But now it's time to reconnect with people. So that's why I do TikTok. I go live every night and I cook dinner for my family. It's my great way of connecting with people. We listen to music. We talk. Some people come in and be super vulnerable, and we'll talk. We'll ask about our day. I have common. Pe- I have, I have you know reoccurring people that come in my lives every every time, and it's enjoyable to catch up and stay up to date with their days. And then there's days like last night where I was cooking dinner. I was like, look, guys, I'm just not feeling it. I'm sorry, I'm just not feeling it. Like it's not you. It's it's a me thing, and I'm able to identify that. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna project my bullshit on you guys, but mm-hmm. it's just me. I'll be back tomorrow. Vulnerability. Boundaries, they're very powerful. I do, look, I do look forward to going live on TikTok more and sharing more. Right now, I'm definitely building, building an audience and a following, which I know just takes time. But it's people like you that make TikTok a place that I want to go. Um, I get annoyed when I find pages that I think are authentic, but really they are just there for the likes and the follows and you know, the inauthenticity that you're going to get with all of the entertainment industry, no matter what it is, whether it's an authentic person or someone portraying themselves. But, um, man, you, you have so many things. I, I can't even recap right now because the, the truth and the vulnerability and like not giving up and you had so many relapses and so many times where you're just like, no, it's too hard. I think I'm just going to stay here. I think I'll just stay drunk. I think I'll just I'll just stay shit. I've, you know, I've already done these 12 things. Like these 12 things didn't help me, so nothing else can, you know? Like you really never did give up on yourself and I think there's power in knowing that you can still always like mess up. You know, there's people I know that are like, "Oh, I'll never touch anything again and I'm going to be so good." And then there's people that are like, "No, it it's a choice every day that I fight to stay away from this. And there's so much power in knowing how vulnerable you can be around those substances. Um, I could sit in a room with anything and I would be fine. Again, I don't, I don't have the addictive issue. I don't, I don't have that thing. Like the thing that I miss the most is smoking weed, but I can't do that just because I have a very, um, the, very, what am I trying to say? High energy child. And I don't want to be that stoned mom. That's like, 
you know what I mean? Like I want to yeah. be able to interact with her. I want her to be healthy. If I go to a concert and somebody passes me a joint, yes. But I don't identify as having an addiction and going anything like that. Like mine, mine was really, um, I call it my suicide modality. Like I was really hoping that I would overdose on a concoction of something. And when I realized that the drugs weren't, you know, like I wasn't like, oh, I love heroin. I can't get off heroin because, you know, X, Y, Z in my life. It was drugs were a modality to get to make sure that I didn't wake up one day. And that that never happened for me. But I had plenty of times like you did where like I would curse the creator and I would just be like, I swear to God, if you wake me up tomorrow and like I don't wake up in heaven or hell or wherever we go, like I'm I'm a waste. Let me go, please. I'm, sh I'm showing you every day that I have zero purpose here. I don't want to fucking do it. And I don't even want to repent for what I've already done. And I sure shit don't want my family coming and being like, oh, I know what you're doing. Like, yeah. please, yeah, make, please don't talk. Thank you. I make it a point to tell people that just because I'm sober doesn't mean that you have to be. Yeah. Like, I know that I have a, have a substance problem and I know that that I'm a piece of shit when I'm on a substance, but that doesn't mean that you are, or that you are. You know, I one of the things I didn't mention is, is I go talk to people that are first-time DUI offenders in the state. You know, that's mandatory, and I go and I share my story. I make sure that it's a point. I I'm like, I even said this last time. I was like, I was like, if you guys feel like you don't have a problem and you guys got a DUI, yeah, technically there's a problem there, and it's drinking and driving. Clearly, you're, addi you're 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 addicted to drinking and driving. That's okay. That's fine. Well, it's, it's not fine because you can fucking kill somebody. But no, I'm not saying that, that the substance is your problem. If you wanna if you wanna get drunk as fuck, that's fine. Go home, get hammered. There's nothing wrong with watching Netflix and getting drunk. There's nothing wrong with going out and having a good time, having a blast. But make sure you got a plan. You know, you know, call a cab, call Uber, call a friend. If you got nobody, then you have no business being out. Yeah, don't endanger somebody else's life because you hate yourself. That's yeah, had, ridiculous. We just, we just had two people. Well, we had two instances up here where people got killed because of a drunk driver. One one person struck a car, and that car caught fire, and there was two teenagers on inside, and they burned alive. And the second one, oh. this, guy, this guy ran over a couple. And all because they were impaired and thought that yeah. they could drive a car. Well, it definitely sounds like your continuation story, which are, are my favorite. We're never done learning and growing. And you have your own platform, Sitting with Sean. Um, but also you have a link tree that I'm going to link down below with your TikTok. But your TikTok is the beard of Alaska, but it's the underscore beard underscore of underscore Alaska. A lot of Yes, a lot of underscores, which is fine. I have an Instagram account with a lot of underscores for my clothing company as well. So I'll be happy to link all of your stuff in the bottom just in case anyone hears your episode and they're like, that's my, that's my peer counselor. I want that that's guy. Yeah, that's my dude. You know, that authenticity, that vulnerability is going to go a lot further than someone pretending like love and light and ooh, I'm healed and sober and you can do it too. That false idol type bullshit that I think we're all sick of in any healing community, right? 
Hearing if I can do it, you can do it too. No, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, that's not necessarily. My path isn't your path. Exactly. What led me here is not that easy. Yeah. I think there's a lot of power in the work that you're doing, and I'm really excited to see how you continue to, you know, really really collar those demons that you know are inside of you. They're in all of us and understanding that um, purifying your disposition and not necessarily eliminating the shadow side and the darkness inside of you. Like they're both you. So, you know, hug your shadow side and grab a cup of filtered water if you, if that's your preference. You know, if you're still, there you go. If you like Monster too, I have my Dunkin' Donuts over here, my little coffee love. Oh, snap. Yeah, I used to be really addicted to coffee, and now I just get to sprinkle it in. So I, I have a like a vice box is what I call it, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have coffee today, but not every day because that's not what I want. But um, I sit I sit very close with the vices. I, there's a lot of things yeah. that I would never do again. Like, like I said, weed was, I mean, my baby yeah. next to my baby. But um, so before I go, I wanted to tell you, so you identified with the, the Hulk yeah. and I identify with Medusa and mythology. Nice. So um, like my huge, like, like come at I wish your motherfucker would, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you have no idea. I'm actually not a fawn in the forest and my kindness is not weakness, but I had so many things in my life that made me very hard, made me very jaded, and wanted me, like, I was like, yeah, do something. Yeah, I'll fuck, I will fuck you up. I will. But, like, now I'm like, okay, I know that that's still in me. Like, but my favorite thing about Medusa now is I want to tell the truth. And I want people to know that, you know, there are a lot of ways that I acted back then based on trauma I didn't know I did or did have. And um, obviously, like, trying to secretly kill yourself in front of a community of people that just had no idea how suicidal you were. And since I'm actually still living and I'm healed enough to talk about the fact that I spent a bigger part of my life wanting to die than wanting to live, I think it's still really hard for people to wrap their head around because, I mean, I'm the hero and the villain in multiple people's stories. And I always say, you probably should believe in both. But if you want to come tell me the story, like, I will 100% tell you the truth, like what I did. Um, luckily I don't have any statute of limitation stories I have to worry about, like with telling my truth, right? Like I don't have to be like, oh, I can't tell you that because that never goes away. But, um, like my, my biggest cheerleader in a weird way is the archetype of Medusa. And, um, I was thrown in a cave and my story was told for me and, and from a lot of different people. And it angered me so much that I knew that the angry part of me is what they wanted. So that's what you got, right? And, you know, going through the dualistic personalities of, no, you get the devil, no, you get the angel. And, I mean, at the end of the day, like, I always wanted to be a good person. And I still I still want that every day. I want to live in gratitude and be thankful that I was strong enough to survive a lot of the things that I did. And um, I'm not 100% healed, right? I mean, I'm still going through all of my own things, but... I know that my intention is to feel good and be good and be a good role model for my daughter and be there for my husband and even my dogs and um, offer that safe space for others that um, either don't have it or 
like me, didn't realize for the longest time that they actually didn't even feel safe. You know, yeah. that was really profound for me is to be like, when was the last time I felt safe? And who was that person that I was with when I actually felt that way? Um, so I just appreciate you so much for coming on and being that vulnerable here because that means a lot. And you have a really powerful story. And, you know, you ever want to come on and continue your story, tell me where you're at, what you're doing, you're always welcome. Well, thank you for having me. And I, I, will, I, would, I would be grateful to come back on and, and share, share more of the journey. I love that. And speaking of sharing is caring, Vitality Exposed Concert Photography is going to bring us a track from Unlike Pluto today. It is off of his 2020 album called Messy Mind, right? How fitting. And um, the song is called Nicotine. It features Joanna Jones. So I have a little bit of a clip for you. Elevens are really big in your story, so it just happens that this clip is one minute and 10 seconds. So we're gonna go ahead and play it for y'all. And I really hope that, you know, y'all go check out Sean's TikTok and all of his fun stuff. This is the Hoosier Media Network, your home for podcasting.